and welcome to the Crate and Crowbar. This is episode 201, recorded on the 9th of August, and I am Tom Francis. With me here is... Tom Senior, swallowing some delicious old-fashioned. <laughs> and... Chris, who is about to drink some delicious old-fashioned. <laughs> Chris Thurston, really that's my full name. You say that? Full name. Chris. Thurston. This is um, an orange caramel old-fashioned, which is mm. just uh, Jim Beam bourbon uh, caramel syrup like you buy for coffee, um, and orange bitters. Mm. Wow, damn. Quite Delicious. a punch. <laughs> um, I would say the biggest news is the fucking Valve game was announced, yeah. <laughs> which really did not cause the ripples I would imagine on, <laughs> on Twitter, even even given that um, it's uh, not a new IP, as they mm. say. Um, so this was during the International, and uh, Day 9, I, I didn't see it live, but I went back and watched. I saw I, the teaser trailer, and then I also went... Uh, specifically looked up the intro to it what day nine said before it was announced because uh it was met with quite a lot of disappointment um and his intro to it was uh this is not a new hero it's not a new i don't know uh, something else decorated um this is a new game from valve and then no one reacts and he says you didn't, guys didn't give that the reaction it deserved and then they all react um and then he says uh and it's not even like a new um I can't remember how he phrased it or something, but it said it's not even like they've taken something else and, and you know, made their own version of it like CSGO or like this. It's a completely new thing from Valve. So he really bigged it up like a sort of completely new IP. And uh, then some CGI stuff happens on screen and it says Artifact. And then a second later fades in uh, a Dota 2 card game. And there was a, what you could only really describe as a bit of a groan. A <laughs> groan boo. Yeah, it was a really uh, not a positive noise. Um, <laughs> it was a lot of noise. There were some people cheering for sure. Mm. Um, but the the overall sound <laughs> was uh, uh, not very positive. So I want to unpack this a bit because I know that crowd very well, that international crowd, and also the Dota crowd generally. And I've seen them cheer for uh, heroes, obviously, in crazy reactions, like absolutely like, weeping in the aisles, tearing <laughs> hair out, rolling around on the floor or something. <laughs> Um, the Boston Major was when Dota 7.0 was announced, and um, I'll probably put that reaction in the show notes because that was just a trailer. That was like the show's over, finals are done. We've got one last thing to announce, and it's a trailer that's just um, the version number for Dota going up <laughs> over time, like a timeline. And behind the version number is oh, yeah. some art for like that era of the game, a character that came out around that time, some splash art associated with the pictures from the international different points synced with the patch number. And uh, yeah, Dota players are attached to versions, but it goes up and up and up and up and up. And everyone at that time was waiting for 6.89 because they were on 6.88 and it gets to 6.88 and then the eight ticks over to a nine and people go fucking ballistic. <laughs> but then all three digits start moving <laughs> and it changes to seven and everyone just loses like their minds. <laughs> and you could hear it like this auditorium in Boston, just sort of like thunderous roar. Then Valve announced a game, a Dota 2 card game at, at the International, and it's met with a kind of like, oh, <laughs> which that says something. It's not just that this crowd isn't reactive to that stuff. It's that specifically people didn't want this, which is kind of really interesting, actually, like, because I, I can't imagine anything else they could announce that would get that reaction really at all, like short of... I don't know. I'm trying to unpick why there's this antipathy towards the notion of it. Cause I'm perfectly interested in trying it out. I'm interested to see what they do with it. And I want to play it. I think it's, uh, it's interesting because it, there's a bit of, um, uh, Valve buying into the thing that's cool at the moment, like seeing that Hearthstone is doing very well. Like a lot of different studios have their 
thing. They've got there's mm. an Elder Scrolls version of this. There's and it feels as though Valve are following suit. And there's a lot of kind of cynicism around the card game genre as a whole, um, which is you know I'm really interested in this because for, like for several reasons we'll get onto. But I think that it simply feels like bandwagoning perhaps to mm. a lot of the fans who are there rather than an exciting announcement of, sort of a genuine new piece of design from Valve. You know, from a pure PR point of view, I was thinking about this after the fact. I think you could announce exactly this thing with basically the same amount of... Because obviously they're not ready to show the game. If they were ready to show the game, they'd have shown the game. Hmm. Um, what they needed to do, I think, and you kind of touched on this when you talked about how Day9 introduced it, but it's not just on him. I think the perfect format for this trailer, I don't work in marketing, would have not been the slow logo reveal. It would have been the cut-to-developer interview. Because they've done so many kind of like fly-on-the-wall introductions for players and things. They have a good documentary film crew now. The kind of thing I want to see to sell that game is a camera inside the Valve office talking to the lead designer of the game saying, we've been really excited about making a card game for a while and this is why we want to make a card game and that's why we're announcing Artifact, a Dota 2 card game, and just get out straight in front with a human face on it and a bit of enthusiasm for the idea Mm. because the problem with like a slow reveal of an obelisk, then a word then a word people don't like is it it buries the lead and doesn't have a lead it has an obelisk which no one understands and then you know what i mean it's just confusing and it relies it it hangs everything on there being enthusiasm for the idea of a dota card game which apparently just simply on its own merits that fact is not exciting to people if they'd have shown some cards going down with heroes on them doing things like i think that would have created a reaction from the crowd the idea of you know I want to see what an axe card looks like and does mm. in a game. That's a really cool idea. And, you know, seeing your heroes recontextualized in a new genre. I mean, that's an exciting thing. Um, but I guess maybe they, they didn't want to treat the international as a game announcement platform. So they perhaps didn't want to do the full kind of fully featured mm. uh, unveiling of it. Rather, they wanted to give the Dota fans like a, a heads up that, you know, a new Dota thing is coming. I suspect this. So we're recording this on, on Wednesday. So halfway through the international now, pretty much getting there. I suspect there will be more announcements because they, they did like, so last year they announced, um, Underlord, who's the character everyone was waiting for, which was the final character <laughs> waiting to be ported from Dota 1. Hmm. They announced him at like the beginning of the All-Star match, which is like traditionally when a hero gets announced and everyone's like, yeah, that's amazing. Way, woo, clap. But then at the end of the event, they also then announced Monkey King, which was the thing that might blow everyone's minds because it was the first Dota 2 hero that yeah. wasn't in Dota 1. And they kind of used that first that first announcement to sort of set up the second one, basically. And I suspect they're doing something similar. Because I think if this was their big announcement for TI, it wouldn't have been thrown in as a kind of interstitial huh. thing on a Tuesday night. They usually have something for the All-Star. Mm. And they usually now... Well, last year they had something pre-finals. So um, I wouldn't be surprised if they had something else and something more Dota-related to sure. announce. And this was just their little teaser. But again, that's a matter of contextualizing the announcement properly and not overselling it particularly given what people want from valve before then revealing this right i think like separately from the reaction of the dota crowd and what dota people were hoping for um there's also the much uh uh, wider net of like everyone who uh cares about valve stuff um they're also weighing in on this and uh also mostly negative and to them it's like half-life 3 was taken away from them <laughs> it's like it's, if they couldn't if valve had prefixed it with instead of half-life 3 we're doing this this is the kind of reaction you'd expect <laughs> mm. um and i think or that's going to be called half-life 3 it's always like whatever they do everything they do until the day they finally uh release half-life 3 
um, will be, oh, we're getting this instead of Half-Life 3? Fuck you. <laughs> mm. Like, there'll be a significant number of people who see everything that way. Mm. And I think they're in a weird situation where they almost, because it has been so long since they announced a new game, um, uh, this is a weird situation where you want to, like, undermine the hype for the thing before it happens. You want to, like, take away it being a big deal and make it a smaller and smaller deal to, to kind of avoid some of that backlash. Mm. I think that's the thing. Like, I think it's just a bad fit for the logo reveal. Because logo reveal trailer is a bad trailer format anyway. But yeah. it relies on the name having some meaning in and of itself. Mm-hmm. If that had been a, if that had been three obelisks slowly flying together to form a lambda symbol, people would have lost <laughs> their minds and that would have been fine because people know what it means. Mm-hmm. This this is, yeah, like, I didn't, yeah, it needed the card art. It needed a developer talking. It needed the Oprah moment where Gabe Newell says out and says, look into your seats, everyone has a beta key and you can play it now. Like mm-hmm. that kind of reveal. Actually, it's quite interesting because, um, uh, you know, you said um, you would like to see them put a human face on it and I agree. Um, and they don't and they frequently avoid that. Uh, it kind of varies a bit from game to game, but in general, Valve have, um, have intentionally steered away from like personality driven um, marketing and they do uh you know do interviews and and let people talk to certain people and obviously gabe ends up being the face of everything um but in general they don't like a person to be associated with a project because you know for all kinds of reasons (laughs) yeah um and but the downside of that is they are just seen as incredibly faceless and um they uh get no sympathy that no one has ever feel sorry for valve no one's ever mm. like oh better not be too hard on valve because you know they might be uh, feeling a bit sensitive and so because i you know met some of the people who are working on this game um and know that uh um you know a lot of work and and trouble went into it it was really harrowing reading the reactions like i just read the replies to their tweet about it and they're just so brutal just so merciless the people it's understandable you know if people are upset they're not supposed to suppress that or hide it but um it's just uh, completely merciless, and I think that's partly because they are so faceless. There's no, there's no one to feel sorry for. Mm. It's just a company, and ripping into them is fine. It was interesting. As soon as um, is it Brad Moyer? I don't know how to pronounce his mm. surname. When is it, uh, who's formerly of Double Fine? When he said, like, I guess I can say this is what I've been working on now. Um, you started to see it soften in certain quarters because it's like, oh, it's a thing attached to a person <laughs> yeah. we know. Like, it's a designer who's because I mean, especially because card games are such designery games, right? Like in a lot of different ways. Mm. Um, you, you kind of want to know who's doing it, right? You want to know why you should trust this team to do this thing because it, you know, it requires a vision and it requires a design. It basically requires a lot more information than they gave, which I think is the the thing. I think that, mm. that like, I like the idea of a Dota two card game. So I, why? I really like the idea. Uh, I mean, there's there is so much to Dota that you could, you know use those concepts reuse those concepts in a card game format with loads of really powerfully designed heroes that sounds that sounds fantastic and also i think um what i've realized watching the international inclined a lot this week is that i love so much about the infrastructure around dota um and how it has its problems which i'll talk about later but as a kind of place to kind of take items and level up bits and it's just a really slick and beautiful thing slotting a card game into that whole interface and 
perhaps meshing some of those systems and let you earn points in one game that go into the other game that is a recipe for that could be brilliant that could be really exciting like i want to be earning battle points in the card game that i could take into watching the international i could i want to buy cosmetics in dota 2 with that stuff you know yeah i want to play the card game while i'm queuing yeah exactly that's a great great point yeah um so i I, i'm actually i'm quite positive about this like I, i also want i like the dota 2 universe i like the heroes i find it really exciting i love the abilities love watching it um, a way that I can engage with that that doesn't mean actually playing Dota is kind of what I want. So yeah. maybe like a card game where I don't have to have all those amazing, you know, Twitch reactions and all, you know, all the stuff that comes with getting good at Dota. Like, that's great. That's quite a good comment. It was a little bit snarky, but um, just said, oh, finally, a version of Dota where my team can't let me down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, I'm, you know, I like card games and I tend to get on card games better the more I like the theme. And mm. obviously, you know, it'll depend on exactly how they choose to do it. Like, I'm curious about the name. Hmm. Um, it, it seems like it's because artifacts are one category of items in the item store. So I don't know if it's item themed. Hmm. The three colors they revealed in the trailer or the three stats, which is a weird, like, cyclical design thing. Because Dota has three primary stats, strength, agility, and intelligence, which are red, green, and blue. Um, and those are the three colors in the trailer. And they, hmm. they're sort of presented almost like they're going to be like the heart houses of cards or, or something yeah. like that. Um, but they stem directly from the stat system in Warcraft 3. So there's a strange <laughs> thing where Blizzard took their Warcraft characters and developed a card game out of them, but didn't wholesale adopt the stat system from Warcraft 3, where most of those characters came from. Uh, right in a roundabout fashion, apparently Valve now has. So like, if there were probably two card games to make out of Warcraft 3, and both of them now exist. <laughs> the, the design war between Valve and Blizzard in the last uh, sort of decade has been pretty <laughs> like, remarkable, hasn't yeah. it? Yeah. Did you guys see um, somebody posted um, a sort of summary of info that uh, apparently Day9 uh, mentioned about how the game works? Or no, not at all. No. Um, then I shall look it up on my phone, which may take me a second. <laughs> it's quite all right. But yeah, I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm in. Like, I'm in for 99%, 99.9% those are things, really. So hmm. uh, I just, I'd, I'd like to have seen more. I think it could have been a more exciting moment. And I know that maybe doing a a post-mortem on a 30-second piece of marketing is not necessarily <laughs> the way, but it's it's interesting because you assume that fan... Com- well, games as a whole has an interesting relationship with fan communities where they're either the angriest people on Earth or the happiest people on Earth. And, yeah, I think you're right, the Valve's anonymity and their kind of reluctance to do the kind of... I mean, I understand the reluctance to do, like, personality-led marketing because it can be, you know fake seeming and yeah inauthentic and and whatever the alternative is this sort of like monolithic you know uh distance that they create between themselves and their audience and it feels like at this point actually they don't it's a weird thing like this show opened with gabe newell dressed as a roadie with three teardrop tattoos down the side of his face introducing <laughs> the have you seen the introduction no. to seven like no, it was mad right <laughs> they went full comedy international which was the start of this like previously the international has always started with a kind of bombastic mm. like very serious so they get um john patrick lowry who's a voice actor who's done loads of different things it's pudge and storm spirit in dota sniper and tf2 and sniper and tf2 to do this booming like welcome to the international <laughs> the ultimate stage of competition between champions from across the world here is the seattle philharmonic orchestra and gabe newell in some sandals <laughs> and like um and this year opened with 
just a sketch basically of two people putting on a vive and slipping into dota and gabe newell played a roadie and then they flew away on a courier and then there was an actual donkey in the stadium (laughs) 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 yeah and so that side of valve the kind of like we can do funny Mm. is still that exists and yet the other side of it is like behold a word That's it. <laughs> okay, so the post on Reddit um, from 0x38e says, random info from day nine on stream. There are three lanes, uh, sorry, there are three game boards that represent the lanes. You control five heroes, just like Dota. You can equip item cards on the heroes that you buy with gold. There are creeps that spawn every turn. You can play creature cards. Some cards are cast on the lane and have persistent effects on that lane. Each hero has abilities like their dota counterparts you can cast track on a hero as bounty hunter and get extra gold uh yeah that's it great so mm. card dota huh quite a literal interpretation of the structure and like uh elder scrolls legends has two lanes and mm. that works very well actually, it's pretty so. good yeah yeah legends is pretty good cool yeah i'm in i'm excited how have you been finding watching ti tom i know you've been watching ti i'm not going to go on about it because it's uh I, I love watching dota actually um even though i like to preface this uh, long-time listeners will know that i know nothing about dota really <laughs> and um, i can't play it I, I just play against bots sometimes just to kind of learn the hero abilities and because um valve much like blizzard are very very good at designing deeply satisfying abilities like the hero abilities when you actually use them feel fucking great and they're really exciting and play with the the map in loads of interesting ways i just can't play it in that competitive context that dota demands of me um so i kind of vicariously enjoy dota through watching people who are the best in the world at doing it (laughs) and i I only understand about 50 percent of what's going on at any given point and in a team fight i understand about 20 percent of what's going (laughs) at a given point um but i think um the commentators do an amazing job even not on the noob stream i've been watching this the normal stream of giving you a sense of the flow of the game and what's important and when something really matters and when, you know, a particular character, a carry dying, uh, get get repeatedly killed is hugely important and where what certain items do, you know. I think the commentary has actually gotten better um, year on year and I think it's excellent this year. Uh, and there is still some kind of like term mix-ups, um, which is difficult for new players to get through. So uh, sometimes they call a character by the character, the, the name of the person who's playing the character. Sometimes they'll call them by the name of the character. Sometimes they'll call them by the name of the Warcraft 3 character that they're based <laughs> on still. And they're, they're moving away from that gradually, yeah. but they just slip back into it through habit. Um, and I've only learned that through, through watching loads of it. I, I can kind of get it in my, straight in my head now. Um, but that, that discipline is improving and improving. And what I'd recommend to people who are watching it who are new and don't understand is to really watch the pick and ban stage because you get so much information about how the game's going to play out and who to root for and who to kind of look at and how the game's expected to play out that's really important for contextualizing what then happens because that then gives you when things as they often do in dota like upsets and crazy things happen and you know the 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 match swings you understand why because you've watched that pick ban phase and you understand what the heroes can do a little bit better um so i I think the actual presentation of the event in terms of the commentators has, has, has improved i also think the twitch stream is absolutely fantastic now it's as good as a sports event i would watch on you know a major sports network now they've got like split screen they've got like cut to the crowds they've got uh, great shots of the players and you know uh really uh great casters really good kind of intermediate commentators between matches and it's a really professional 
uh, endeavor. They did have to hide their recycle bin at one point. In the, <laughs> did they? <laughs> like there was just it was just the the full screen. You can see the commentators um, uh, doing a post match analysis and everything. But there's just like a recycle bin, my computer, and a couple of things <laughs> on the bottom. And you can see a cursor like drag selecting them and like right clicking and trying to figure out how to hide them. I love those little moments because that reminds me of, like earlier TIs were a bit like that. Mm. Um, but now they're like throwing to purge on a kind of an enormous screen. And it's like, it's better than watching the fucking election on the BBC. Like he's like drawing lines across. He's it. the Dota Dimbleby. <laughs> he's the Dota Dimbleby. <laughs> and I've always liked purge because I've always found him to be a very clear speaker, speaker about the game to new players. Like he, he's, uh, he wrote like a really fun blog post called Welcome to Dota, You Suck, which is this is almost like it's the best guide to the game. Ever it's incredible. Yeah. It's just, um, it lays the whole thing out for you and, and you know, uh, with, you know, gives you the impression that it's going to be hard and this is why you're bad at it but and this is how to get better and why you know why you're failing like it gives you a real sense of you know what you know how the game works which um almost like anything i read about dota doesn't at all uh so yeah purge is great i love him and he, but now he's got this incredible like high tech setup where you draw on the screen he's got like video clips lined up of the previous match and in two minutes he just gives you so much information about what went wrong in that game and like i i don't know whether it's accurate but it seems very it is, authoritative yeah, to me and really good. like insightful. Well, he's across from a panel of people who've won TI, so he's mm. not going to be like, <laughs> yeah. he's not going to get it wrong, right? Yeah, like, sure. And if they do, they'll call him on it. So, yeah. Um, so I, I've really enjoyed TI this year. I can't speak much to like the meta or how it's playing out, but I found the games to be like consistently exciting and full of new heroes. Like like the hero pool seems to be insane this year. It's like, crazy. It's it's, a, it's a, maybe even better than last year. Mm. It's interesting. Like, though it's a really weird place, and as someone who's covered esports a lot, it's an interesting i think it's an amazing place but i can see the flip side which is so a game like league of legends um which is obviously the game that gets compared to the most has um a far more restrictive meta game in terms of how many heroes you'll see in the course of a tournament mm. far more restricted and a far more set global order for terms of who wins and when and how much so and you'd think that seems restrictive because the same team wins worlds every year and you know on a given meta you see the same characters over and over again However, seeing the same characters over and over again is good for newcomers because you get used to the five, yeah. six characters you really need to understand. And also, um, it creates really easy storylines when a character you never see gets picked and gets thrown into a game, win or lose. The other side of it is that when somebody looks like they might take down the champions, even though they inevitably never do, that's a storyline as well. Hmm. And Dota is just chaos. The game is in a balanced <laughs> enough state that, like, I think by the end of the group stage, like, 105 out of 110 heroes have been picked which is insane because it means you see everything <laughs> right you see every hero in the game which is amazing if you're used to it because you will see your favorite hero at some point yeah but it also means that you know beyond a few there are not too many heroes that a new player can latch onto. it's like oh i understand why this guy's important the other side of it is the returning champions aren't even there they didn't <laughs> return um most previous ti win has already been eliminated anyone could basically win it at this point and it'll probably be one by players you've never heard of mm. <laughs> um which is great again because it shows how internationally healthy it is and there's no regional imbalance there's no like one place that always wins it's just anyone's game and e even then then the standard just keeps getting higher but it means that like the storylines are much more granular and require more expertise and more experience with the game to understand why things are significant yeah it's funny because that sounds like the holy grail of balance right, that, right. as yeah. a game yeah, designer yeah. that would be your end goal is make it so that there's no surefire winner there's no one dominates it's all all uh, yeah uh, totally wild and anything could happen and then that 
could actually end up producing a tournament that's less entertaining to watch because it's like i just can't follow it it's too well, much i think i think it's amazing for people who are like super into it yeah but it means that the meta game is very like the meta game isn't defined by a hero it's defined by like themes or like play styles and approaches mm. and like attitudes towards the game which is super interesting if you're interested in that right like but if you just want to know like who's the important guy to pick or ban then it's not as easy to say anymore i remember when i first watched it it was probably like two years ago or something it kind of was at that stage where there are like the most interesting moments to me where someone picked a hero and everyone's just like whoa the crowd just went fucking nuts nobody picks this what is going on and i guess that doesn't happen so much these days no because it's like that's also legitimate everything <laughs> is a that's decision. a bad choice <laughs> i still find it really exciting when people pick a monkey king though um yeah he's silly he's uh yeah i that hero is, is mad i didn't know what he could do before i started watching this tournament and no one's really offensively used his ability to turn into a banana <laughs> no, i've not seen that yet <laughs> no one uses it because it's his joke ability he turns <laughs> right. into like a banana he can pretend to be a tango he can pretend to be a bottle yeah. he can pretend to be a courier um mm. no one ever uses this because it's nuts it's an just, item hunt uh yeah it's, it's a prop there's a prop hunt mobile prop hunt, nice. yeah Oh, that's right. I, but watching him like vault from one treetop to another and then vault over and like slam a guy and take him out. There are just moments of just incredibly satisfying competitive victory in Dota. Um, especially in like this TI I found actually. Um, like uh, an ancient apparition just sniping, uh, the opponent's fountain and just getting the critical kill that makes the push happen, which I saw happen in like a series of uh, like I think last night. Um, those moments are just like, even if you don't understand every intricacy of the game is incredibly dramatic and the uh, like pushing up and like the final push seems super dramatic in this in this mm. patch of the game and I, I i can't speak with any expertise to this at all but simply I've, I've watched most ti's now i've watched like a fair amount of dota for someone who doesn't play it um and i feel like there's such a really cool mix of pushing fighting jungling and the final pushes are really easy to watch like the, the you know where the concentration of power is happening and you understand where the push pull is between the two teams and when a fight's gone well or badly i find it like far more readable than previous games uh, more and not just because i understand the game better i just feel like the game's like really exciting at the moment mm-hmm. i think we yeah, i think i think you, you're right and the reason for that is and this is interesting because i think this is you know the flip side to the maybe it's better to have more clearly defined metas and things mm-hmm. is very much depends on what the meta is and there is a meta but it's based on two things that are both really good from a spectator point of view one is so broadly speaking meta games get more exciting um the less important carries are and the more important supports are because supports are the characters that move around the map and make plays happen in the early game so you're mm-hmm. more likely to have a more exciting early game if that's where team if that's where the sort of the power in a game is coming from if what sports do isn't as important and what carries manage to farm is is more important then you end up with slower games mm-hmm. that drag out um and at the moment the most important character on the map is the position four who's like the traditional roaming support and you're seeing a lot of like strength characters with big stuns like sanking and Earthshaker oh, yeah, and night stalker yeah. and these sort of like you know every character can do something cool but those are the characters that make the big obvious visible like dunks right sure. they're traditionally landing big stuns and kind of hmm. this kind of thing the other side of it is that that creates early game pressure or advantage the other half of the game now is is that it's pretty difficult to break base those sieges the one of the reasons they're easier to watch is they're taking a little bit longer hmm. like there's there's more involved in pulling that off both in terms of map play and in the going uphill at the end basically and that's a really good tension to have because basically those are the two parts of Dota that are traditionally the most exciting. It's like ganks and rotations and early game kind of map strategy mm. and then big climactic sieges. And, you know, Icefrog has done a good job of balancing the game around those two things. 
so there are things that are less effective now that used to be more prominent in previous metas um but those things are where the kind of the attention is being placed and where the games tend to be hinging and that's a really good thing better it's interesting to think about balance not just in terms of is this fair hmm. but what kind of show does this yield when it's fair because there's been plenty of times when dota's been fair but it's come down to like illusion sieges which is about infinite fake copies of somebody that are on fire slowly pushing a tower down over 20 minutes hmm. which is not exciting even if it's balanced right like this really interesting kind of yeah. push and pull when it comes to the game design side of it there was another story this week that i don't know if we want to talk about um because to fully talk about it involves a small mechanical spoiler for it so it's hellblade yeah we should talk about this i think okay so um uh a minor spoiler warning for hellblade uh it's not a story spoiler it's about how a mechanic in the game works mm. um and something was discovered about it which was always going to be discovered and was always going to be discovered right at launch and was always going to be spread around all over the place but some people on hearing this have said ah oh, that's a bit of a spoiler i wish i hadn't known this so yeah if you, I felt if you that, want to go felt, into hellblade and i felt that way about it as well i think the hmm. the coverage around this thing we're about to discuss was i think a little bit insensitive of people's both rights to de- to d- design games that surprise people and also to be surprised by games but yeah, yeah. Go on. so skip ahead like five minutes i guess if, yeah <laughs> if you don't want to hear this um so hellblade uh caused a fuss because um it uh the news was it has a permadeath mechanic um it's not a randomly generated game right it's just completely handcrafted um and it's about eight hours long and uh you can when you die you do go back to a checkpoint or, or a save game uh but if that happens too many times each time it happens a corruption spreads up your arm and if it reaches your head then it is uh, it deletes your save that's the um the sort of uh, the headline and it tells you this like early on there's a big message that says uh, each time you fail this corruption will spread if it reaches your head um you'll have to start from the beginning it says you'll lose all, all your progress all progress will be lost is the precise word yeah. what it tells you um which uh so story one was that <laughs> and there was a huge fuss over that and uh, a big um sort of uh um debate about whether a lot of people were very upset about that and said this is garbage and, and it should be optional and it's it sucks that this is being forced on us and then a lot of other people saying well there's a such thing as artistic intent and people should be able to to make bold choices and it's uh people decrying that you know anytime a developer does anything different they get ripped apart by the um uh the mob who to them it seems they just want the same thing over and over again um and that was kind of an interesting debate in itself and then it turns out that uh the permadeath thing is a bluff that uh even if you die like 50 times there's actually like a set point at which the corruption will not spread and that point increases as the game goes on so it appears to get closer and closer to your uh to your head but apparently no matter how many times you die it will never go beyond the the prefixed point that it's supposed to be at at that point uh, in the game um and uh which is fascinating because there are reviews of this game that specifically go out of the way to praise it for how much that adds to the the game saying that um uh this fact that so much is at stake that you could permanently lose your entire progress uh, gives an emotional charge to all the combat and the the encounters and stuff uh that they really enjoyed and that's obviously the intent between behind telling you that you know they, they specifically make a big deal of telling you that this is how it works um and the fact that it doesn't really work that way obviously kind of undermines that if you know it but if you don't know it then it doesn't so um now it's uh, actually the debate just seemed to end <laughs> it's just like that, that was kind of big news but then there was no further discussion because like well now we don't know what to think <laughs> but i thought it was an amazing um 
like uh i almost want to call it like a historic uh gambit in game design like the game just outright lying about how the mechanic mm-hmm. works well, i'm not sure about that i think that games lie to people all the time yeah especially about stats and dice rolls and True. things like that i i guess such a such a blatant bluff that was always going to be discovered that was always mm. going to be rumbled and it's it outright tells you this will happen and it the whole substance of what it's saying is not true. <laughs> I need to finish it first because all progress will be lost can mean lots of different things. And maybe oh, there right. are alternative endings. Maybe there are lots of diff- you know, different mm. outcomes. Like it's, The game hasn't been fully explored. Now. I think why the, the reason why the conversation has gone quiet is because no one's played it to completion and actually properly right. examined the game to actually find out these things. Yeah, it's an interesting one because I am in definitely in the camp of people should definitely be able to do this. I think the thing that frustrates oh, yeah. me about it is not the people writing about it because it's interesting. There's everything to be said for like, oh, what an interesting thing this game is doing. Let's explore how it works. Hmm. It's because that there was an initial and obviously now exposed as kind of reactionary Ferrari, as if this was some kind of consumer rights issue, which is as ever the single most tiresome thing that can possibly happen in games pretty much is like, is this a consumer rights issue? Because the answer is almost always no. Right? <laughs> right. Normally it's like, do you want to buy the game or not? Yeah. That was Total Biscuit's position. He was um, playing an early version. Yeah, and he was complaining about this mechanic and saying uh, he hated it and it was stupid. And um, and somebody replied to him, I don't know what they said, but something in defense of it. And he replied to them saying, if if you thought a pro-consumer critic would like this, then you didn't think at all. Yeah, and it's such a, I mean, I'd say that's an idiotic position, right? Like (laughs) the game contains what it contains. You either buy it or you don't. The game is forward with that knowledge. So it's not like it deletes your save towards the end. And then to both then take that position and then not even research it enough to find out if it's a bluff. It's just embarrassing. Mm. Like there's no, there's no, there's no benefit to anybody from that other than the controversy it creates. For sure. But then controversy is <laughs> what he thrives on, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's his business. Uh, but uh, as far as um, the game's right to do this, I mean, games have done this sort of, or threatened this sort of thing for for ages. Mm. Like um, Eternal Darkness on the GameCube used to do all sorts of things, threatening your save games, messing oh, really? with your TV Taking settings. Out your TV's broken, yeah. Uh, and, you know, Metal Gear Solid games have done this. Like, there's been loads of kind of, you know, meta fourth wall breaking stuff in games that's been like a total delight when you play it and encounter it. Um, and it, it, like, most of them don't go as far as to actually destroy your experience by just without warning deleting all your save games <laughs> and like uninstalling the game from your hard drive or anything like that. But as an experience, like, I think, you know, Whenever I go into a piece of entertainment, I'm going in expecting to be lied to. I'm going in saying, hmm. lie to me for my entertainment. When I go to a film, I don't go to a play and say, that man's not Hamlet. You know? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <It's a> really <laughs> good... Not since the first time. You know, anyway. <laughs> um, oh, I've completely forgotten the guy's name. Is really, there's, a, there's an amazing uh, sort of, he uh, does a lot of stuff on Twitter and YouTube, voice actor slash little sketch. I know no, what you mean. I, yeah. And I've, it's like, is it He's pro like, VSD or something like that? Yeah. It's something like that. And I've He's completely in. forgotten, but I'll put the link in the show notes. He's done some amazing game spoofs over time, but mm. he just did one this week, which was, um, like Neil deGrasse Tyson reviews a film. And it's just the first few bars of everything is awesome from the Lego movie. And then I'm turning to the camera going, Lego people can't talk at all. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's that attitude. It's like yeah. there's no truth here to uncover. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a conceit mm. as part of the conceit you're consuming for entertainment. Yes. There was, um, something that came up in relation to this was, uh, somebody linking a sort of post-mortem for a game called Fury, F-U-R-I, oh, yeah. mm. um, which is apparently a, an incredibly difficult game and, uh, one of those sort of super frustrating punishing games that some people love and some people hate. And they were doing a postmortem, defending their choices on that and uh, explaining why 
you know, they knew some people would hate it and some people would find it super frustrating and, and they stuck to their guns anyway because they knew uh, the payoff would be worth it for the people who did like it. Hmm. And apparently one of the, and there have many controversial things in, in that game apparently, um, but one of them is there is a kind of secret ending um, uh, which um, you have the option to kind of... Uh, kind of give up fighting i don't know exactly the context of it. i'm only going by their uh description of it um but basically you have the option to sort of say no i've had enough fighting i'm just going to stop and if you say that that ends the game and also there is no way to get any of your progress back i don't know how saves work in that game so i don't know if it's like you make save games and it deletes them i, I don't think that wasn't the impression i got it sounded more like you just have like one save and it's like a checkpoint or something and if you end any of the endings of the game cause you to no longer have that checkpoint um and that is one of them and it caught a lot of people by surprise and a lot of people were pissed off about it um some people loved it but uh some people like you know i said this is an experiment and now i've lost my entire game and i've got to start again if i want to uh, see any of the other endings it's um yeah following through with the threat is an interesting one because um I think it, I think it's fair game as long as they've warned mm. warned you. I think Hellblade actually handles it really well. Yeah, which is yeah, to so say, yeah. I think the thing with fear is it doesn't at all warn you. You mm. literally, as soon as you said it, it's over the whole game. <laughs> I think, yeah. yeah, I think I think tricking people into what could be a really damaging decision, uh, assuming that they will, won't use their kind of existing knowledge of how games work, is one thing. Because that mm. sounds like the situation yeah. there, right? Where people kind of assume that nothing in a game can really damage my progress so i'll just give it a go and see what happens yeah yeah and we all did this with prey right there's a sort yeah. of a, yes exactly. early on you get an opportunity to do an ending that i think none of us would would want to do as the real ending but we all kind of tried it to see oh what happens <laughs> yeah exactly and if, if it had then gone like you did it deleting your save <laughs> yeah you'd probably be rightly pissed off because you have to warn people about that thing but that's why the hellblade approach is the correct one yeah, yeah. like i mean because even if they followed through with it it would be fine <laughs> hmm. right like they would have made a creative decision. They'd have warned you, told you this is a game mechanic that we're doing, like it or not. And if you don't like it, then all of the coverage in the world is going to be available to help you make that decision. Hmm. Um, you know, they, they, given that this turns out to have been a bluff, they've probably lost sales over this, right? And they probably knew they would lose sales over it because they're not going to hide this mechanic. They're going to put it up front and say that this is the kind of game it is. It's a eight hour game where hypothetically you could get eight, seven and a half hours in and have to start over again. Um, that will pop people off and they deliberately did it anyway because they w wanted the uh, atmosphere that would create mm. and the sense of tension that would create. And that is a valid creative decision. Also, it, like, I played the game that is well in keeping with the tone that game is trying to create as well. Um, however, you know, having said that, like, uh, threatening save deletion is one thing, but uh, a lot of games that actually do this are not built to be repeated and hellblade is definitely not built to be repeated right um it, 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 to repeat that game would be really arduous <laughs> and <laughs> you know it, it would it would be a poor experience on a second playthrough i think so that's something to bear in mind it's interesting i was playing um all walls must fall which has just gone into oh, yeah. early access uh, and that's a game uh set in uh 2088 or 89 or something and the premise is that it's an extended cold war that's brought to an end by a nuclear blast in east berlin um, and the game is set in the 10 to 12 hours before that point where um, time traveling agencies are sending uh, agents and assassins into that space in that 10 hours before to try and present the, prevent the disaster and find out who's discovered it. And uh, it's, uh, you play, it's, it's a term based, oh, combat stuff, it's hard to describe. Um, it's like Crypt of the Necrodancer. 
terms of the movement system. So the beat's always playing when you're not in combat and you move with each beat of the, of the huh. club. Uh, so that's how you actually traverse normally. Um, when you go into combat, it turns into a turn-based thing where whenever you move one square, everyone else moves one square like Rogue. Um, but it's uh, all set in procedurally generated clubs <laughs> uh, in the God bless East, video games. East Berlin gay scene. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Again. <laughs> um, <laughs> and it's it's an amazing setting, actually. Like I've never played anything like it in terms of setting. And, it, and visually, it's... it's it's made in Unreal Engine 4, so all of the clubs are kind of like in these beautifully lit, kind of gloomy, green-grey uh, 3D environments, but with like 2D cutouts of like hundreds of half-naked dancer yeah. fellas just kind of like clubbing. <laughs> it's amazing. It's so good. Um, I've never, I, I love the way, I love the vibe of it. I love the kind of setting of it and stuff. Um, but it's a game where if you die, you have to restart again. Um, and then you have to go through the same introductory mission and then there are conversation systems where you can talk to the bouncers if you flirt with them successfully they might not kill you and they might just let you into the club for free <laughs> uh, or if you threaten them or if you um you know they have respect for you you can get in um the trouble is like <laughs> when you're building a conversation system it has to be replayed over and over and over again it just doesn't work because you go through the same conversation options yeah. very very quickly and it, it was a, a great example of a game that has loads of good ideas for which repetition isn't actually a good thing for it and like a one sing singular kind of playthrough from start to finish um might be more you know better for its systems even though the story it's trying to tell kind of requires you to play different missions in different time zones and piece it all together and hellblade feels like uh, the opposite of that where there's nothing about hellblade that repeating it will give you <laughs> like it's, it's designed to be like a once through experience mm. um so threatening permadeath in that context is a different uh, a different setting to like a, a game hmm. session designed for it. It's interesting because given that it has been exposed as a bluff, the threat of permadeath is then supposed to be part of that singular experience, right? Mm. It's almost been made with that in mind. Yeah. Like we want you to have one experience of this, but we want you to think right. that you might have to start it over because as some of those reviewers said, that will enhance the experience, mm. which is super interesting and obviously unsustainable. And I don't know if they knew it was going to be unsustainable when they did it yeah, or if it, was just, if it was just naive. Mm. It's almost a shame. Like you, you, you want the kind of the commentary that surrounds the game to be kind of respectful of intent but it can't always be yeah uh, i do think you know i think there's a there's a gray area i think i think going all in on like this is terrible is obviously a mistake because you have to research that if you're going to make that kind of like point but there's a there's a step back from that where you go like oh i'm not sure about this where you are you know behaving according to the kind of information you've been given yeah it depends on the kind of the thing you generate out of it but it was hilarious watching that like whole thing bubble up, turn into this debate and then just vanish when someone actually bothers to look into it. Even though looking into it and obviously being the first outlet to bang that drum and say like, hey, we got it, guys. We figured it out. It's actually a bluff. Then kind of spoils it, right? The, like, the replies to that video um, reading it were all just like, oh, thanks for spoiling it, man. <laughs> like it, people were pretty pissed off about it. This is the thing is as soon as it enters that kind of like as soon as it enters the discourse, it can only be ruined one way or another. Right. <laughs> Which makes you have thoughts about the role of all of this. People <laughs> yeah. are just making games worse. I, I think there are ways of presenting those headlines that warn people who are interested to stay away. Hmm. Um, I think like a spoiler warning on that PC Games end piece would have been useful for people, especially in the tweets. The thing I've had, I've had game ideas before that that you know would be ruined as soon as people discuss it publicly. Hmm. And the only idea I had for sort of getting around it is if you have like a fan base already then you get those guys early copies 
like you do a sort of oh, yeah. one week uh early access type thing um and make sure that all the big fans get to play it before there's been any chance for there to be any coverage of it at all hmm. and then uh, they get to have the, the unspoiled experience and then inevitably once it's publicly released for everyone it will be hmm. spoiled but yeah it's hard though i mean maybe this is one of those things that like games should be repeatable by nature of what they are and what people expect from them. You wouldn't necessarily think that'd be the case. Like, hmm. I remember when Dear Esther came out, I wondered if there was going to be suddenly become a market of games you, like, bought tickets to. Like, if they hit <laughs> play, like, I want one showing of Dear Esther, please. Hmm. Like, it feels like that's unex- un- underexplored space in a way, because, you know, you don't expect, like, you buy a ticket to a play or a, a movie you're not going like, and now I will watch this. Eight, I expect to be able to watch this eight, uh, four or five <laughs> times before I feel like I need to get about you know thirty hours out of this before I've got my money's worth. I need to understand everything, every single thing about it, and see everything I'm going to You kind of accept that, like I've got one shot. I, get, I watch this once, pretty much, and if I like it, maybe I'll go again. Hmm. That doesn't really happen with games, and it feels like it would be a good. Did you? Um, uh, I remember you saying when you're playing Tacoma that you're sort of already planning to play it again i haven't finished Did it you, yet you haven't finished it yeah I, I, i've been distracted by the opposite game which we'll get to later, <laughs> but, um is fucking awesome by the way I'm yeah really Tacoma's great um it. yeah i, really I have finished it now it maybe feels like Tacoma is, is an interesting example of like a kind of experience game that does factor this in and kind of yeah but mm. multiple multiple approaches can exist like it's fine to it's maybe help it would have been a good choice for like you just go around to me and house and you play it there and he tells you <laughs> that if you he tells you that if you die too much he's going to throw you out and you're not going to get to play it anymore <laughs> this is like what, what were we talking about before about um uh oh shit uh colin northway's game that only exists on one laptop no i think right. it was, yeah, it might yeah. Have been um yeah they're, they're, colin northway is making a game that exists only on one laptop and he destroyed the network ports and the usb ports so that it could never be taken off that laptop <laughs> and so 100 percent of the people who ever played it played it on that laptop uh in front of him and it was kind of just an experiment um uh but you know he said it it was an interesting game design thing because you don't need to make a tutorial because you're going to be there every single time anyone plays this game (laughs) so you can just tell them how to play (laughs) maybe there is a there is an argument that a a too sophisticated or or a too integral bluff i don't think this bluff is integral to hellblade we'll talk about the game itself in a minute but like i don't think it all hangs on whether or not you believe this thing that it's telling you at the start it does feel like a bolt on that the game survives i've definitely been to sort of uh interactive or immersive theater stuff um particularly for example shows that use audience plants um Hmm. which is that is a complete all-in because it can often be it's it's a it's a way of getting things into the show that you definitely can't do with a real member of the public Hmm. but and you get the shock and the surprise of that but as soon as that people know that's how it works um that gets around really quickly and the show kind of dies where it is. It's mm-hmm. such a gambit. Like I what mean, kind of stuff do they do with audience? Plans? So I remember there's a, there's a, do Belgian, they kill them? <laughs> well, there's a Belgian theater company called Entre and Goad, um, who were great. And they, this is a good example of like interactive stuff that just lies to you. They did an amazing <laughs> show one year, um, that I saw that was basically like going on the best date you've ever been on. It was, and it was just an interesting demonstration of how, human and how vulnerable you are to being told what you want to hear basically mm. you'd go in and you'd be picked by an actor who'd invariably be an attractive person and they they were pretty good at kind of making sure they matched up sexualities and things at the start and you basically just sit in a booth and have a conversation with them and they're just really good at making you feel like you're having a conversation with an attractive person who's attracted to you and it's, <laughs> and it all means something and oh, it shit. doesn't no, no. 
and that's the stinger at the end you can give them your I'll address and they'll, <laughs> at the end they'll give you your address and they'll like oh, send no. you a postcard a couple of months later saying like oh this my was god a, like, that's awful <laughs> yeah. but it's kind of amazing because it teaches you to be like to just it, it expresses something you kind of and you're buying a ticket for this thing yeah you're going yeah, in knowing sure. that you're paying an actor to lie to you yeah yeah, yeah. and it, it, you know it was fascinating it's really interesting and I, I loved it and it's horrible but i loved it <laughs> but it, it was great and then a, a year later a couple of years later i took um friends to see their subsequent show which is more of a stage thing it was like stuff happening on a stage with audience volunteers being pulled up and um there was a I can't remember the exact context. So it wasn't as good and it wasn't as, it wasn't as coherent an idea. Um, but at one point they basically like pulled a woman out of the audience to humiliate her on the stage. And it was horrible, like probing questions about her. And they're trying to get the audience to kind of get in on this kind of like, basically like, you know, baying for more kind of salacious details and more kind of gross stuff. The people I was with were horrified. And I was like, this is brilliant, but really uncomfortable because I recognized the woman because she'd been the person that I'd been matched with <laughs> when oh they were God. doing the show the previous year. So I knew a hundred percent, like she's a member of the company. Yeah, yeah, this yeah. entire thing is a bit, they're doing a demo. You know, I don't know if it was a particularly sophisticated bit, hmm. but it like, I was sat there like, this is fine. And everyone else was <laughs> like, do we walk out? This hmm. is, seems mortifying. And I remember a friend being really pissed off at me, like, why weren't you angrier about this? And it's like, well, I recognized her from the last show, yeah. right? And then as soon as you found out that it was a plant, it was a plant, that it was a lie, that it was a ruse, the entire show changed and it went from being like, um, possibly actually dangerous to just being like a bit exploitative and that was the gambit with lying to the audience too much mm. when you hinge on them not knowing but even if they did know it was kind of weird and so i think there are risks associated with that but like again hellblade is kind of it doesn't hinge its entire ethos that was the weakness right like it, it, that show hinged its message off you not getting something that was super easily spoiled for you yeah because then i told you know if you tell the people about it you can go like oh they use an audience plant in a really horrible way and the show is dead in the water from that point onwards really hellbird just isn't like that right like, well uh, yeah i mean <laughs> hellblade is not trying to do anything like uh, hellbade is trying to do something very specific with you with your psyche actually like maybe we should just move on to what we've been playing yeah, definitely, because, yeah. um i'm about halfway through it i think and uh, hellblade is very definitely trying to do things to you and put you into a certain mental state with its you know uh, entire presentation and uh its vibe and uh, by sometimes lying to you which is what is required to you know in a uh, in a piece of fiction to actually have an effect on you um so it's about um a young woman who is on a quest uh, and she's carrying around this is established very quickly in the first sort of minute of the game um she's carrying around the head of her of someone who is special to her and she's on a mission to avenge him and rescue his spirit from Helheim. Uh, so it's uh, kind of loosely based in anthropology, but it's also a game about psychosis and about interpretations of mental illness, about interpretations of, um, you know, uh, visions and that kind of thing. And the way that kind of translates into the way that um, perhaps mental health issues have been translated historically into mythology and that's the most interesting part of the thing about the game that the way it does that and the way it kind of explores that is is the most interesting about it even when as a game sometimes it falls down um so uh the woman's called senua and she's uh she gets off this log and she goes into this island and uh she's hearing voices all around her all the time 
And the game recommends that you play with headphones, and that is absolutely essential. Uh, you must <laughs> play with headphones if you can. Um, because all of the voices she hears, you hear constantly throughout the game. And they're doubting you, they're telling you to go back, sometimes they're telling you to go forward, sometimes they're offering advice. Sometimes if you're in the middle of a combat encounter, they'll say, like, it's behind you. And, you know, that's your cue to dodge and stuff. So it intermingles, like, uh, just gameplay advice with puzzle advice with general kind of scene setting stuff. And I think it does it very effectively. Uh, it's recorded using uh, binaural microphones. And, and uh, what that is, is um, instead of just having a single microphone, like most soundtracks are constructed with uh, a load of individual sound channels that you then um, artificially arrange into a stereo arrangement. Um, with binaural setup, it's two microphones designed to replicate the human ears and often the way they're actually built is they build a human head shape and put two <laughs> microphones where the ears would be, uh, two directional microphones where the ears would be. And then uh, what this does is that um, it creates an incredibly powerful sense of space. Uh, so the, the position of origin from a sound is very accurately recorded by binaural. And in fact, even without like uh, surround sound headphones, you'll get a sense that someone is behind you even from a binaural recording because it so accurately represents the you know how sound distorts through space mm. uh, and it's really really effective it's been used on loads and loads of uh, loads and loads of music and i love seeing more of this used in games and this is an outstanding use of it these voices coming in at you from behind you all of a sudden panicking you um this kind of constant susurrus of like peripheral voices forming an almost like incoherent um anxious mess of like turn back turn back keep going she's going to do it that kind of stuff it's constantly assailing you with that stuff and um it's a deeply anxious game to play because of that i think it's it's very very good at setting up its atmosphere looks incredible and has this uh, extraordinary kind of facial mocap technology where um you're playing uh as you're in third person so she'll turn to face the camera and a kind of light will come down on her as she's kind of encountering the spirits around her which are of course voices she's hearing in her head and it's almost like uh, it's mental illness pushed through the sieve of norse mythology so it's ancient warriors that follow her around and give her advice and uh, her mother that she sees in rocks and that kind of stuff uh, and all of that stuff like artistically i think it's, it's so much to recommend um about this game uh but the actual <laughs> process of going through the game itself involves some incredibly boring processes that <laughs> spoil it for me. Um, so as she's going through these environments, uh, she, she comes across doors. Her ultimate aim is to get through into Helheim, the land of the dead, to rescue her, you know, lost love. That's quickly established. Um, so you, but when you get to a door you can't open, the door glows with a shape. And then it says, Sanyo, you must find this shape. <laughs> then you just look around this 3D place and then zoom in on the shape and then the door opens <laughs> and that so much of the game is that <laughs> loads of the game is just like oh you need to find these two shapes you need to align shapes hanging off branches to form a shape and it's about very slowly moving through environments and and finding shapes and the like a lot of the reasoning behind that puzzle making is really interesting because it comes from um a type of uh like a mental process that sees shapes and objects and things mm. that aren't necessarily there for people like that mm. um the, the actual the reasoning behind why they've introduced these puzzles is is great like it, it's really fascinating way to approach approach the game like where you know um 
you could look over to a series of branches that just seem would seem arbitrary to you and I, but someone might see the face of a god or the face of their mother or something talking to them, uh, or g- getting the sense that they're being they're communicating with some greater force through an arbitrary object that's where that's where the idea comes from but the execution is incredibly boring as <laughs> it's like it's really 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 boring and doesn't really communicate i think what the purpose of it you know supposedly mm. was it feels like um the witness would almost be a good fit for this because that's all about seeing mm, like yeah. once you've been playing the witness for a while you just start to look at everything as if it's some meaningful pattern even in real life you'll just come out and think is there like a thing i could trace around here <laughs> i think that's actually that would be a better execution of the same idea actually honestly because it to actually put you in the mindset where you're looking for patterns that aren't there and kind of even getting mm. you guess second guessing tree shapes around you and stuff yeah. like that i guess it's the weakness right it's the patterns are there exactly it's it's the <laughs> you're right <laughs> it's the opposite of that kind of pattern finding mm. impulse or that kind of form of like you know that form of having you know visions or Im- impressions putting impressions upon the world is having them actually be there there is actually a face in those trees there is actually this kind of you know what i mean they're like, almost too explicit as well mm. so when you're seeing those faces it's not like um you've actually just found a face that's really obscure and a, a connection of branches that's unlocked a little bit of extra kind of dialogue or lore or something it's literally there's just a great big enormous stone face <laughs> behind that waterfall over there and no one is going to fucking miss this <laughs> you know what i mean it's, it doesn't really it doesn't it's not about putting you into the mindset at that point it's about just zooming in on things for for, for dialogue um and a lot of the kind of extra stuff you like there are these stones that are standing um, sideways just off the paths and you zoom in on them and then a voice comes in and tells you a bit about Norse mythology. And the game is so gamey in so many ways that it, I think it really undermines the stuff it's trying to do with, you know, with its initial premise of like, oh, let's do psychosis via Norse mythology mm. and, and see what that looks like for this character. Uh, have you two played it? I've uh, So I, I haven't played the final game. I played it when they first brought it to the office, like a year and a half ago. Okay. So that was a bit of that. It was a little bit of combat and the basic themes and some of the pattern finding stuff. Mm. I'm really looking forward to it, actually, but I want to block out time to like play it in one go, pretty yeah. much. Like I kind of want to have that experience and then put it down and let it set settle, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's super atmospheric, and I really like the combat, actually. I think it's excellent. <laughs> I also really, really like the commitment to the no HUD for the most part like it's this is uh the developers of devil may cry yeah, yeah it's ninja theory, ninja theory. So. and i've forgotten how the devil may cry series works but the last one was the one you really liked tom yeah uh, dmc yeah. it's the only one yeah. they've made okay right? like yeah the game is like um dmc devil may cry is a much revered series was given to them a western developer almost out of nowhere and they've done stuff like enslaved before but they'd never done that type of high octane combat game yeah i somehow didn't realize they were in the uk <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. i just um, assumed they're a japanese developer and um and dmc is fucking great i love it yeah I love I've it talked, um, we've talked about it a lot before on the podcast but if you like um really exciting combat games um in the devil may cry mold then they blew it out of the park as far as, as far as i'm concerned um and this is their attempt to kind of go properly indie and kind of shrink down as a small studio and do huh. something a bit new um and i think i i really really love what they've they've tried to do um it sure looks triple a in terms of like visual yeah 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 it looks incredible and there's the reason why it's got a photo mode and (laughs) it does look incredible it really does um it's just that like a lot of it does feel padded out which is Hmm. i hate saying that because you know it implies a degree of um like a lack of imagination or something which this this game certainly doesn't have a lack of imagination Uh, but a lot of it is a lot of those puzzles of the slowly going through um doorways to line up 
um, symbols stuff is such a like a weak interaction, especially when the combat is so strong. I think actually, like it feels so reactive. The dodge move uh, is like always just works and is really swift and really believable when you see Senua do it in third person. Uh, she's got a wonderful like you hold down. I was playing with the controller. It's the way to play it. I think um, hold down left bumper and she dashes towards them and you can um, kick uh, or slash and that is such an exciting move like they've the actual movement and the back and forth of battles i think i really enjoy about that game uh, and uh, to be clear so you're you're just behind so anyway you're just behind your character and it's it's designed for like close one-on-one battles um, but increasingly it throws more and more enemies at you but you've got the voices telling you when they're about to attack from behind so that vital little bit of extra information i think solves that problem that those close um you know close behind character combat systems tend to have uh, and when you hear that you you can dodge right and it's so reactive and you feel awesome. You feel like a total badass warrior when, when she does it. Um, so I, I, I love the combat. I wish that they were making God of War <laughs> because um, the new God of War is a, a very similar combat style mm. where you're just behind Kratos' shoulder and kind of um, fighting one-on-one with stuff. Um, if it turns out that um, that game's combat isn't as good, then they should have given it to Ninja. Then. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's some of my favorite, like... I don't think they're, they're, they're one of the best like stylists in mm. in like particularly like, like British game design. I think of like studios in this country that reliably do something really super interesting with every project they've worked on. Yeah, for sure. Like, yeah, I'm really excited. I do, really do want to play like such a cool, yeah, such a cool direction to take. Like, we can do in a really amazing combat game. What do we do with that? Mm. In, to take that impulse towards we make something much more serious, much more linear, and more about an experience than than you know DMC but indie you know what i mean like it's really interesting i think i I, I increasingly like everyone hates the word walking simulator but uh, that comes with a certain weight like Mm. i think there is enough weight behind hellblade to actually just walk through it calmly and experience like it really does try and put you in a mental state and think opening yourself up to that and um i wouldn't say enjoying but you know experiencing it is definitely it's definitely um worthwhile even though a lot of it's kind of a lot of the tasks it makes you do are deeply tedious. <laughs> what have you been playing, Chris? So I played two things this week. Um, first one is something I a huge amount of time to talk about. So I played um, all of the Shrouded Isle, which is not the Oblivion expansion. No, um, that's what I keep thinking. Yeah, Shivering but, Isle. Um, yeah, Shrouded Isles. And actually, Shrouded Isles was an expansion for Dark Age of Camelot. So, um, it's, nor is it that. <laughs> um, so what this is, is it's a... Uh, a pretty sort of simple when it gets down to a game about managing a cult in the last days before some kind of apocalypse. So you are the kind of the high priest of a, or like something like that, of, of a society that lives on a little island um, by themselves in fear of uh, a god called Chernobog who will <laughs> return at some point to destroy the world, mm. basically. In three, well, in three years, essentially. And each year is divided up into seasons. So functionally, you have 12 turns for the entire game if you survive that long. And all you do is it's quite... So I'd describe it as board game-ish, apart from the fact that most of its systems wouldn't work were it not digital. But I think that's a kind of a hard thing to get your head around. But like Hearthstone is like that. Like Hearthstone has a million ideas in it that would never work in a real CCG. Yeah. like copying cards and things like that but yeah. it still feels like a card game this is nothing like Hearthstone but it's got a similar kind of idea of like feels like a board game to play against yourself um, even though all of its ideas wouldn't work so the way it works is 
um, you have a village full of randomly generated people who are each members of one of, I think, five houses. And each house does something different in the village. And each house has like a uh, sort of a matriarch and a patriarch and then kids mm. or like adult kids underneath um, down to teenagers. Um, and at the beginning of the game, each um, villager has randomly generated but hidden um, virtues and vices. And because it's sort of not a pleasant place, all of the virtues are things like ignorance or discipline <laughs> or uh, violence or things that will help the cult maintain control and psychological control over people. All of the vices are things like curiosity and um, being bilingual. <laughs> um, wow you know uh there are some there are some vices that are more you know obviously bad like kleptomania or being a pervert but those are the really serious things most things are just minor things like you know a bit promiscuous those are the kind of traits you need to stamp out hmm. um each house has its has its own opinion of you that's one thing but each house is also associated with a kind of a quality that you need to maintain in the population which include things like ignorance and penitence and discipline and each of those is represented by a bar as well and um every season you have to pick one member of each house to be your advisors and then then for the season you can you get three rounds of assigning up to three of them to do their thing so the people from the house that burns books you can assign them to burn books for a third of the season and they will, or a month, I guess, and they will raise ignorance technically hmm. and so on. So you combine those things to kind of manipulate the bars using a house also makes them like you more. So that's the other things you, and you can't use them all all the time. So you got to balance that. However, what you get when you send someone on one of these tasks is determined by their virtues and vices. So someone might have a virtue. Someone might not be in the house that burns books, but they have a might of a virtue that they're really dumb. So when you use them for their own thing, they also increase ignorance just by virtue of being really dumb. <laughs> uh, I'm so stupid. When I do things, I make other people stupid. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, and it's fundamentally a numbers game in that regard. And, um, and, and by using them, you also might find out some of their vices and virtues by through experience. And you also get, depending on how, many, how much the house likes you, the opportunity to like launch inquiries into the houses, which gives you a limited opportunity during the kind of downtime to find out more stuff about characters. Hmm. The way it works is at the end of every season, you have to sacrifice somebody to Chernobog and you have to pick that person from your advisors. So you have to pick five people that you think will help you positively affect the stats you want to affect and the relationships you want to build. So ignorance and so on. But you also have to be willing to kill one of those people at the end of the turn. So you can't necessarily just pick five amazing people necessarily you almost want someone in there who's really bad because when you kill somebody that will obviously have a really devastating effect on the relationship of that house with you hmm. um if you um however and if you for example if you pick keep picking the same house they will get like a cumulative they'll hate you and if they hate you enough they'll kill you <laughs> so that's game over hmm. the game just ends it's a kind of a you know partner like in that regard um, however, the more proven and the more severe the vice of the person you kill, the more the, per the more the house as a whole have to just suck it up. <laughs> so, um, there are different stages of this. So if someone has no proven vices, then that's the, the worst time to kill them. 
if you've proven that they've got a minor vice, like they're a bit curious, then that's bad because the vice is forgivable. If you've got proof that they are, for example, a kleptomaniac, then the house, the deficit to their reputation is much less. So it's really a game about plate spinning, but it's very atmospheric and there's a lot of sort of like narrative events and things that get dropped in to kind of surround this. It's horrible. Like, I love how deeply cynical it is. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's just, it's kind of interesting in a way because it is a simulation of like the deep cynicism and the manipulation of running a, a cult in mm. the end times, basically. And the presentation is like, it's, it's monochrome, green and dark green. Like everything is just dark green. You can pick other color palettes, which I think are purple and dark purple <laughs> and like wine red and maroon or something like that. It's so green, incidentally, that when I'd finished playing it, everything in the world looked blue Oh, it's yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, for, for a while afterwards. So I'm playing it full screen on a big monitor. Um, but it's pretty interesting because... It sounds like a cross between the Yorg and Darkest Dungeon. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Um, so I think it's got a really good sense of atmosphere. It's got really nice music. Um, it's, 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 it's a miserable thing to experience. <laughs> like you can lose for a bunch of reasons. So if any of the stats get low enough for an entire season, you lose. And if you fail to maintain re- reputation with the house, you lose. Um, what I would say is, so it's a six pound game and I played it for two hours, I think, and I'm done. Okay. Which that's, you know, I don't think that's a terrible return on investment compared to other kinds of, like, like I'm saying, buying tickets for games is fine. Yeah. Right. Like, uh, and it's an interesting experience that time. What I found was, and I won't go into the details because I don't want to risk mechanical spoilers. What I found was eventually I stopped seeing the theme quite so much and started seeing how to play it to win essentially and there are six endings it depends on different kind of criteria as soon as it flagged for me or twigged for me what i needed to do and how to game it essentially to make sure that i didn't lose and i kept the plates optimally spinning i got the first time i finished it i got like quote unquote the best ending Mm. it's not a happy game by any means (laughs) but like i got like the hardest one to get the first time i'd gotten it and I didn't feel the impetus to go back and get endings that result from slightly less optimal outcomes because I feel like I've solved it in my head kind of mathematically as a kind of game of almost like dystopian solitaire. Like it's about matching patterns and kind of like figuring out how to move animosity around the village so that people hate you kind of evenly, but like, you know, the way that's distributed over time, like that kind of thing. Mm. But I think as a little experiment, it's super cool. And there's some interesting bits of writing in it and, it's funny how like there are little narrative events that pop up in addition to the kind of day-to-day thing. So at the beginning of a season, you might get a letter and it triggers a little quest and sometimes it'll span multiple seasons. And I think we playing it, you do see more of them. So there is a reason to go back and try it again. But it's really funny kind of initially being invested in the characters and what's happening to them. And then later on just seeing like, okay, well, this event is terrible. But if I murder this person, that's going to raise ignorance. And I really badly, we're low on ignorance this this season. Like we're just, people are a little bit too clever. And if we keep this up, I'm going to be burned alive. So <laughs> we're just, you know, we're going to do this thing anyway. One of the best minor vices that you really shouldn't kill someone for having is teen, which is you've just discovered that they're a teenager and they do teenage <laughs> things. And whenever you send them to do something, it says, and their vice pops up and there's, flavor text for every the way every kind of vice and virtue influences the outcomes of different things hmm. it's just like this person's too young to have been given this job <laughs> you've sent them to flagellate people and they're too young for this so it's not as effective what are you doing and then you can murder them for that at the end of the season. <laughs> stop and being so like, young this, this is a forgivable vice being young but it's again it's that kind of deep cynicism like the, mm. it's a really interesting because it is ultimately a game about cynical manipulation of numbers but marrying that notion to to cult management is a really cool idea that yeah, doesn't definitely. entirely not fit. Even though it, even though the atmosphere suffers when you do start to seeing it as a card game, um, 
it doesn't quite break because of that sense of like the person running the cult is the person who doesn't see any of these people as people and doesn't believe in the religion for a second and it is just power and manipulation mm. and and you know stats basically mm. so yeah it's pretty it's pretty yeah, cool like for, for six quid it's pretty cool i think it's definitely one of those like interesting steam cell pickups as well yeah sweet. i think it's yeah give it a go what have you been playing tom i have been playing shadow tactics which is a game that has been recommended to me many times um and PC Gamer called it one of the best stealth games of the last decade, which sounds like the kind of game I should play immediately, but I did not play it immediately. I'm playing it now. <laughs> I don't know how old it is, like a few months at least. Um, it is a... So, Commandos was released in 1998, same year as Half-Life. Mm. Yeah. Shadow Tactics feels like a game that comes from an alternate timeline where Commandos was the one that like lit the world on fire and <laughs> everyone started... And that became the AAA industry and like mm. everyone just copied that um, because it is a uh you know it's technically not isometric because you can rotate the camera but kind of isometric um tactics game where you have multiple people and you it's all about stealth uh, it's all about hiding in bushes killing people when no one else is looking dragging them into the bushes before one else looks back um but it is incredibly lavish it's just beautifully made it's made to an absurd degree of quality it looks gorgeous it's um uh just no expense was spared on any front, which is strange because I, uh, the developers I've never heard of. It's me, me, me productions, and their their previous game is some extremely colourful thing about a wacky monkey. <laughs> is it that guy from the Muppets? <laughs> I don't know. Um, something about a, a monkey that looks like a, a kid's game of some kind. Um, that looks radically different in every possible way. Uh, whereas this is very no, it's not very serious. It's um. It looks very realistic. It is set in the, uh, I might be pronouncing this wrong, but Edo era of Japan, mm. um, of Japanese history. And your characters, the ones I've been introduced to, are a basically a ninja guy, a samurai guy, and a thief lady. Um, the ninja guy can throw a shuriken. He only has one. <laughs> Budgets are tight. Um, and he can throw a rock, which makes people turn around. Um, and he can just, if he gets close to people, he can stab them. The samurai guy, um, can, uh, he's enormous, incredibly bulky and, uh, kind of cumbersome looking, uh, but he can still stealth like the ninja guy. Uh, and he can kill multiple enemies if he gets close. I think it might be only two actually. Um, but you could sort of click like a radius and the first two enemies in that radius get uh, killed by a super samurai attack. Um, he can also throw a bottle of sake, which um, when people see it, uh, if a guard sees it, they will walk over and pick it up because it's um, very uh, appealing to them. Um, and that lets you, you know, uh, jump out and, and sword them. Um and he can also, when he's carrying bodies, he just carries them at full pelt. He can just sprint whilst carrying bodies and he can carry two of them <laughs> and he can carry two of them while sprinting. <laughs> so he just has like one person under each arm. <laughs> it's great. Um, and so it's all about like, it, it, it's funny because it feels set up to be a game where you carefully coordinate these people. You, you know, you always have more than one person in a mission. Um, and there is a special shadow tactics mode or shadow mode where you engage that mode and then you go out and do something and you didn't really do it. You're just planning to do it. And then you go back to where you were and then you switch to a different character and you go out and mm. do something with them and you didn't really do it. You just, you've just planned it. And then you hit a button to execute those plans at the same time. 
which sounds cool uh, and it is kind of cool, but it's not... What that sounds like to me is, oh, this is a game about, like, take as long as you like, set up the perfect plan, execute it, and we take away the, the challenge of execution. It should all be about having a good plan, and then, you know, we provide the tools for doing that. But it doesn't pause the game when you do this. So you can only ever plan something if you're already 100% safe, if you're just sitting in a bush where no one is ever going to find you, no matter how long you spend. Because planning itself is kind of cumbersome. It's a little bit, you know, it takes a while. You've got to plan each person individually. Um... And you can also only plan one action at a time. And it's really restrictive on that. Like you can't, uh, if you wanted somebody to like uh, run out and then kill someone and stealth, that's two actions because going into stealth mode is an action. Um, and if they're currently in stealth mode, they can't come out of stealth mode and then do an action because coming out of stealth mode is an action. So... And because it's time sensitive, if they're in, like in a bush and you want them to run to somebody, uh, you basically can't really do it in shadow mode as far as I can tell because to change them into running mode would be an action and that's the only action you can plan. You can't plan beyond that. If you tell them to kill that person, you can do that, but then they'll sneak all the way over to them. So they'll leave cover at a really slow rate and just go really slowly. So that mode feels like I just don't use it that much. I just I end up controlling one person at a time and I do everything with them. Uh, you can't pause... There's no pause and plan at all, so you can't like pause and tell and decide what to do. Your time pressure is always on; the clock is always ticking, and so the only way to get around that is to you know hide. It is really good. Um, it's a very uh, I kind of want to say like it's a grown-up stealth game. Like it it has learnt the lessons of many failed stealth games in that um, enemies' vision cones are kind of two tiered. They have an area where they're clearly seeing that area, and then beyond that, they are only somewhat seeing that area. And if you are crouching you are completely invisible in that other area. They will never, ever see you, no matter what. Um, but if you want to kill someone, killing is like a high-profile action, and so they'll see you even if they're, you're in the extended vision cone. And then when you're in the, the closer vision cone, um, it they take a second to see you. You know, it progresses. And the way they show that progress is, uh, is the cone is usually green. The yellow part of it progresses towards you. So the cone is also like a progress bar, which is a really neat way of showing it. Hmm. Uh, and when it reaches you... Um, you'll be detected, which means that naturally when you're closer to them, it'll reach you sooner. So the detection mm. range is more That's sensitive, cool. which is a kind of sophisticated thing, yeah. but represented so simply that you just immediately get it. Mm. Um, the rules are really clear. You always know whether, it, you know, you always know that if I do this and someone is, you know, this far away from me and facing in this direction, I will be detected. You don't always necessarily have an immediate handle on who can see you. Uh, it does have a really smart system where uh, they obviously... Um, I think they had a, a discussion in their development of this of like, well, we can't show all vision cones all the time because the game will just look like a fucking mess. <laughs> and that just would be better for gameplay. It would just be better if they could do that. Um, they do not let you do that in any way. Like if they had a mode where you could toggle that on, they know you would leave that mode on. Right? <laughs> and they know their game is beautiful and they don't want to ruin that. So they don't let you do that. Instead, you can select one enemy at a time to show the vision cone. Uh, if you're using mouse and keyboard, you just mouse over them and that just shows it. Uh, on gamepad it's got kind of a cool system where you hold down like d-pad left or something and then you're in view mode and the closest enemy to the camera it will show them their vision cone and when you leave view mode it'll keep showing that person's vision cone so you kind of pick one person to track and they'll just be tracked for good but you can also place like a vision marker which is uh you pick a spot like if you're planning to lure someone to this spot behind a hut and then kill them before you do that you place a vision marker there you can only have one at a time and while it's there and it'll just stay there until you put it somewhere else. 
Um, anytime anyone can see that spot, you'll see a line going to the enemy. And people are on patrol routes and they're looking back and forth and, and all this other stuff. So if you're just, if you're planning to kill someone and drag them there, you put the marker there, you wait a while, and then like, it looks safe, looks safe. Oh no, line. And then you follow that line and see who saw it. And you realize, oh shit, there's a guy on a balcony like way over there and he can see it. Because the vision cones are really long. Um, it sounds like a really abstract way to establish who can see what. Like it's nothing to do with what your characters can see, right? No. Yeah, you have perfect knowledge. There's no fog of war. You can always see everybody all the time. You can pan the camera as far as you like. The whole battlefield is is visible. The levels are enormous. Um, they take like two hours to complete. They're oh, wow. just absolutely massive. Um they're massive and it's a stealth game so you just spend fucking hours getting past two guards <laughs> um it's it i have had cool moments of, of setting two people up uh just on the latest mission it was uh the, the latest mission actually was the one where it really came together for me early on it was so it is very difficult um and very i would call it like claustrophobic it's really Unlike something like Dishonored, where you have loads of leeway, you have loads of room to maneuver, loads of room to come up with your own approaches and do whatever you like. Um, early on, this feels like here is a, it's almost like a puzzle. It's like, here is the puzzle. What is the solution? There are multiple solutions for, for sure. And there are loads of different levels of those solutions. Like you can, um, every time you finish a level, it tells you all the badges you missed. And they're just like, oh, you could have done this without creating a distraction at all. You could have done this even with those people there. You could have done this without killing anybody. <laughs> and you're like, holy shit, what? Um, but uh, it feels very much like um, unpicking, like knitting or something. Like everything is so interwoven. This guy can see that guy, so you can't take out him. Mm. That guy can, but, and so you want to take out the guy who can see him. But then you can't take out the guy who can see him because someone else can see him. And then you follow that path back and the two guys can see that one. But one of them looks left every now and then. And while he's looking left, could I take that guy out? No, because there's a civilian who walks around here and you trace it back and back and back. And then you find out that guy. No one's watching that he guy. Let's fucking die. kill him. <laughs> um, but you also have these. So I've got three characters now. Their abilities are like um, the ninja guy could throw a rock to make someone look in that direction. The samurai guy can put a sake bottle, which will lure a guard if they see it, and they'll walk over and pick it up, and he can throw that so he can put it somewhere that he's not. The thief can place a trap that will kill someone when they walk on it, and she can whistle to attract someone to her. Hmm. They'll go to exactly where she was. The drawback of that being she's there. <laughs> so you've got to figure out how you, you place your trap, you whistle there, then you've got to figure out how you get out of that situation. And those are three very distinct mechanics that all are basically the same kind of thing where you're trying to attract someone. So in that mess of unpicking who you can take out, You've got to consider not just can I kill them where they are, but can I get them to somewhere where I could kill them? Mm. And who can see that spot? And uh, it takes ages to to figure that stuff out. Um, and that's r really cool. Uh, level three, which is the one I just got to, uh, it's, it's the thief and the samurai. I don't have an ninja on this one. And the thief can use, can basically like grapple up onto roofs. And this is a level where it's like a village and then a compound in the middle of it. And there are ropes between all the roofs and so the thief can just get everywhere she can just go up on the roof and just scamper across the whole city and just get to wherever she wants um but it's patrolled by enemy samurai who she cannot take out even if she gets a jump on them even if she sneaks up on them she's just uh, they're too good in combat they can take her out they're also immune to her trap and uh, they have special rules about what they're distracted by and so only the samurai can take them out but he's mm. got pretty bad stealth capability and he can't go on the roofs and so you've got to use these two people in concert and basically you do the virtually the whole level with a thief get to a, a cert, get inside the compound you've got to drop down and like uh, pickpocket a key from somebody and then get back out and unlock the door so that the samurai can get in and then he can deal with the samurai for you and uh 
uh, then eventually you've got to like steal a document. That's the one where it really feels like this one does not feel like a puzzle with a fixed solution. It really feels like I can just go anywhere and do anything and, oh, cool. and figure it all out. And I <laughs> ended up hiding to get my samurai close to the gate. Uh, I'd done it all with my thief easily. And then she'd got the key and she unlocked the gate, but he needed to get to the gate. And it was basically doing the whole level already done, but with a totally different character with different abilities and much harder. And I realized I can just, there's a wagon that's going through the city and I can just wait for that wagon. And if, while well, it's stationary, you can get in it. And I did that, but because he's not very good at stealth, a guard saw me and the guard walked over to the wagon. I'd done this like a few times and it had failed. He, he just kills you. Um, in fact, one time I got in the wagon and the guy guard walked over to find me and uh, the way he kind of rumbles you when you're in the wagon is he gets in the wagon too and then the wagon just left and he's just like i have like six health or something and he takes off one health like a second and he's, it's he's like the yelling about... graduate and you're just at the back of the bus and, you know, <laughs> just sort of lots of awkward glances everyone's losing health <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly like that <laughs> so me and him are just riding through the city while he slowly stabs me to death uh and the, the time that it worked i got in he still did see me but he was only like semi-suspicious and he's like oh someone was around here but the flag, like the location he's set to investigate is the wagon itself. And the wagon is now moving. And so he walks after it. And it's an incredibly slow wagon. So it's just <laughs> about faster than him walking. So he's walking like a meter behind it, trying to get to it to investigate it. But it's going slightly faster than him. So over the course of like the several minute journey, he gets a bit further away from it. Um, and then uh, when it eventually arrives, surprisingly, I was thinking like, this is probably scotched. I'm not going to save or anything because I think it's going to... Um, I'm going to be screwed when I arrive. Uh, he follows it all the way. He doesn't get lost. But then when he does, when it does stop, he just waits. <laughs> he just stands outside. It doesn't go to investigate. He just waits. Um, and so, because I had my thief out there, I could have her skirt around him and take him out from behind. And then <laughs> it was a weird day for that guy. <laughs> I feel compelled to follow this wagon, but I don't know why. <laughs> I don't know what to do now that I have. It's like a dog chasing a car. <laughs> I also, there was a civilian watching that area and I need to take him out first. And it's not expressly said, but you sort of, you prefer not to kill civilians really. And I threw out a sake bottle for him to distract him. And, uh, he said, Oh, a gift for my wife, perhaps. <laughs> and I was like, Oh shit, I really can't kill this guy now. <laughs> but, um, so I knocked him out, but knocked out people wake up. Um, but brilliantly, there is always your option to knock someone out is not dependent on whether they're currently conscious or not. So you can keep knocking someone out again and again. <laughs> and so basically, I was using a samurai we'll to do them it. Up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's how concussion works. I want a concussion top up plan. Just compound it. <laughs> so it's the Very massive healthy. samurai guy, and it's this like frail old man who's who wanted the sake bottle for his wife. And so I punch him and then drag him out to the back of like because the. Samurai guy could just run with him. He just puts him under his arm, <laughs> belts to the co to the very corner of the map, throws him in a bush, and then just punches him again in the face. And then every now and then, I'm controlling my thief and doing all this other stuff. And every now and then, I have to switch back to my samurai and punch that old man again. <laughs> Don't fucking wake up. Just stay down. All right. You can have the sake bottle when this is over. <laughs> sounds kind of amazing. It also sounds like it shares some of the issues that Commando's always had, where the environments are so detailed and you can in interact with almost anything, like you know the, the engine of this car over here or you know this backpacker guy's dropped has loads of stuff in you could swap into your inventory if you want to like that, that's what commandos is always like and i love the idea that you can just get into a bus um and you know, have that whole adventure um yeah one kind of strategy game that's awesome yeah that's awesome sounds great chris you've also been playing lawbreakers i have yeah oh, so um i play loads of lawbreakers now well relatively because it came out <laughs> yesterday and i've played six hours of it wow the sign is what that indicates is that I like Lawbreak quite a lot, actually. <laughs> oh, um, I like it more and more the more I play it. Um, I'm 
super interested to see how it does. So this is um, Cliffy B and uh, Boss Key, which is his new studio, their debut game. And it is definitely, definitely what would happen if you told a lot of people who were nostalgic for Unreal <laughs> Tournament and Quake 3 to make a game now with modern production values and design ideas. Hmm. But it's not pure nostalgia. It's kind of, it's very clever and very well designed and very inventive in ways that I suspect won't help it retain a player population. <laughs> and that's my big concern. I feel like at the moment I'm really enjoying it and it feels like Titanfall in the good way and the bad way where it's right. like, I love this. It's doomed. <laughs> like, and I'm hopefully I'll be wrong. Like yeah, hopefully, yeah. hopefully I'm wrong about that. Hmm. Basically, um, it's a, uh, so the format of the game as you would buy it is essentially Overwatch. It's a multiplayer only shooter, um, with about the same amount of maps that Overwatch had at launch, um, with nine classes. Uh, there, it's technically 18 characters, but there are two teams, Law and Breakers. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, um, each, each team has all nine classes and there's a different character for each class in each team. So they're the same, but you get like two separate sets of cosmetics basically for right. each class. Um, so they're the same abilities. Exactly the same abilities. Exactly the same okay. abilities. So there's, it's not 18, it's 18 characters, but nine classes, sure. if that makes sense. And they're, they're visually quite distinct, but they're the same hmm. mechanically. Um, and a bunch of modes and the, that's, that's the game. Essentially there are custom games and quick match. It doesn't have ranked yet. It still feels like it's at the beginning of its journey in some ways. And it has leveling up and stats and loot boxes. And those are the things you do in, in that's the structure. It's very much Overwatch in that regard. The thing that makes it very different is it's, um, it doesn't really give a shit uh, as far as I can tell about accessibility. Hmm. Like it's not the shooter for everybody that Overwatch is, for example. I mean, I'm surprised that comparison's even being made apart from structurally, like structurally it's the same, but, um, you know, Overwatch was notable for being a sort of team objective shooter, a little bit like TF2, where there was a kind of, there was a character for every play style. If you didn't actually like shooting in shooters, there are characters mm. that can kind of account for that with like auto aim guns or something else. Like, you know, characters has a big hammer and kind of walks around and the pace of it is very slow. Mm. Like people maybe not think that now, but Overwatch is an extremely slow shooter by the standards of like, for example, Unreal Tournament or, or, um, yeah, or even old Team Fortress, to be honest. Um, and, uh, Lawbreakers is the opposite. Every class in Lawbreakers feels like it could be an Unreal Tournament mod. That's the <laughs> way I would describe it. Like, you basically have Rocket Arena guy and Instajib guy <laughs> and Tribes person. Guess who I like? <laughs> it, it feels like a load of different high concepts for a kind of shooter all operating as different roles within the team, which is a super interesting way of designing a shooter. Yeah. There's one big high concept, which is kind of like the flagship thing of the game, which is this um, zero G stuff, which isn't actually as big a deal as you think. So the way the maps are designed is there are, there are these like sprawling sci-fi maps and areas of them have heavily reduced gravity. It's not quite full zero G, but often like there might be like wide open areas with like deadly falls on all, all areas, but there'll be this like these like gravity generating orbs in the air that kind of pull players towards them. You can kind of slingshot yourself around, hmm. but that isn't the entire game. And one of the nice things about it is the idea isn't really overused. It's important, but it almost becomes like a kind of seamless part of the game along with the different movement mechanics that different classes have. Like there's an assassin with either very damaging dual knives or a shotgun who has like a laser grappling hook 
who interact with the zero G areas in com- a completely different way to the sort of flying jetpack person. And the flying jetpack person handles that in a different way to the laser boots person. And <laughs> laser boots, laser boots, laser boots is the best character. <laughs> um, and it's Does the lasers propel you. Yes. In some way? So okay. the laser boots are great. So there's my favorite class, which is the Harrier, which is, um, so you have a laser gun and you have laser boots and the laser boots, basically when you press shift, they fire lasers out of wherever your feet are currently pointing. So the vast majority of the time that's down, right? Um, and that means you can use it for a vertical lift, but you can also kind of ski with them. It's, it's kind of tribes-ish and I really like that. Um, um, and yes, and mostly using it to get thrust or to move forwards, that kind of thing. However, if you hold backwards when you're jetting, you kick your feet out in front of you so you can jet backwards really quickly. Like hmm. that it's the class that can move backwards fast, which no one else can do really. Hmm. But also, when you're doing that, your lasers are then pointing forwards and they are lasers. So you can kill people with <laughs> that. And melting people with your feet lasers is amazing. <laughs> and only that class can do that. And everything has this really interesting skill ceiling. Like it just, every class has some crazy skill ceiling in terms of what you can do with its movement mechanics. Well, maybe not every single, like some of them are less focused on movement and more like holding down a point, for example. But like it's just skill cap in all directions. Like you can see the kind of twitch skill that it rewards and the movement finesse that it rewards and your ability to sort of micromanage your fuel gauge alongside everything else. Um, so at that level, it's a very intensely complicated tutor. Like when I first played it, I was very intimidated by it because really nothing in it works quite like you'd expect. Like the roles don't quite like there are tanks and healers and damage and stuff but they all they're also different to each other that you can't transfer knowledge from other games you have to actually learn them and there is like a practice map and there's a like a video an embedded youtube video for every class in the game that will explain all of this stuff and there was a point where i started playing and was completely overwhelmed and realized i need to get a cup of coffee and sit down and just watch these videos for a bit just to know what the fuck is going on because that aren't easy analogs really like the harrier who's like the jetpack person is sort of like a chaser or a capper from tribes but is also kind of a support class because their e ability creates a uh, spawn point for a health and fuel pack which you can use to create like a static place where your friends can respawn also it can refuel if you're defending Hmm. but you can also like throw it at a wall as you're about to run out of fuel grab it as you go past which instantly refuels your fuel bar and use that to sustain boosts and jumps that aren't possible in other contexts like it's it's nuts it's that that's the game that this is Hmm. um and that's one class like the um the medic is also kind of a demo man like the the uh the dps (laughs) characters all do different things in different ways um from each other so there are different areas where different damage classes are suitable and not managing those classes in zero g is very different from managing them on the ground you have to be able to do both and you have to be able to transition between both and also anticipate your opponent transitioning between both there's loads of there's loads of depth to it and then the other side of it is that none of the modes work exactly like you'd expect and they're all like revivals of things that have completely gone out of favor in shooter design like there's no payload modes and there is no team deathmatch it's all basically CTF variants, but like really uh, with one uh, CTF or um, point control or like King of the Hill. So super old school archetypes for these kinds of things. Um, but none of them have been left alone. All of them have been tweaked in some way. 
in ways that are actually super cool, even though they're all variants on the same idea. But that means that when you first get into it, nothing makes any sense because nothing works like you fully expect it to really like everything has its own logic or its own internal rules and all of it's really cleverly done and it speaks to i think a lot of like you know it you don't necessarily know what it means for cliff blazinski to make a game now really mm. necessarily i think i think gears of war is great i always have but like you don't know if that's just a name or whatever but this really feels like it comes from a place of people who fucking understand unreal tournament and have just made like the best total conversion for that game. Like, <laughs> um, so the examples, so by way of an example, there are two modes that are very similar to each other, but crucially different in ways that kind of open up as you get more into it. So, um, one's called uplink and the other's called overcharge. And so in uplink, both teams have, it's always team based. It's always like five on five teams. Um, in uplink, there is a, like a, like a, it's like a transmitter, like a satellite dish pickup that spawns in the middle of the map, like a flag um, or an objective. You grab it and you take it back to your base. And while it's plugged into your base, your base starts to transmit information, whatever, from 1% to 100%. When it gets to 100%, you get a 20 second countdown. If you can protect it for that entire time, 20 second countdown expires, you get a point. If at any point your opponent manages to steal the transmitter, and take it to their own base, uh, their charge begins. However, your base stops at whatever percentage you'd gotten to. So maybe you get to 50% charge, and then your opponent steals it and goes and fully scores. Hmm. You're still at 50%. So your next, and it's the first to three. So you score faster. So you score faster next time. Overcharge is basically the same idea, but inverted. So there's a battery in the middle of the map, and you take the battery to your base to charge the battery. Hmm. And the battery charges... And then when the battery reaches 100% charge, it's a 20 second scoring period, at which point you score and it's first to three. However, in that mode, the battery holds the charge, not the base. So if you steal the battery and if your opponent charges it to 90% and then you nick (laughs) it, you can score almost immediately. So all the, all the liability is held within the objective in that mode, whereas Mm. it's in the base in the other mode (laughs) and they feel really different. And the way you have to kind of construct a defensive strategy around that is really different. Um, even though on the whole, they're both, one flag ctf modes yeah. but they're completely different to each other with one simple mechanical difference like, that feels like so much like a, a decision that most teams would sort of try it both ways and then decide which one they like and then yeah, stick it's with got it both. And, then... it's a, and it's got like a third mode that's like neither of those but basically the same idea <laughs> <laughs> like maybe this is it maybe like you know so many developers have watched modes live and die and you know uh, a lot of Val's favourite maps in TF2 just died as soon as the game was released. Maybe that's the thing to do, is just put all these modes out there and see what the audience actually gets into and latches onto and then ditch the rest. Yeah, and there's like, the, the mode that's also like that's called Blitzball, which is like there's a ball in the middle and you've got to get it to a goal in, in the opponent's base. So the difference there, you're going to get it to your opponent's base, which is obviously a strategic difference. Hmm. But that's it's more like traditional one flag CTF, except the ball has a cooldown period. So if you don't get the ball to the enemy base sometime, then it'll blow up. Uh, the ball is also voiced, I think, by Rick from Rick and Morty. No, Morty. <laughs> really? Morty from Rick and Morty. Okay. So the ball's really not happy about anything that's happening <laughs> at all, uh, which is great. Um, and that feels super different. And then, like, there, are, there's a, a version of, um, like, three-point domination. You know, we have, like, three capture points, like the traditional Destiny PvP mode. Yeah. That is fucking great. And I don't know why no one's ever done it before. And the way that works is, rather than it being, like, so, you know, you, it's a traditional setup. You spawn and then there is a capture point close to your team's 
starting area, a capture point starts at the enemy team's starting area, and a capture point in the middle. And top level, it's the same. Holding two points gets you points faster than your opponent, and the first to score cap wins. Mm. However, it works completely differently because it's a race. So basically, it's hard to explain. And this is why the game takes a while to click, I think. So it doesn't work anything like you expect it to. When a point is captured, it's then permanently captured for that team. As soon as all three points have been claimed by a team, you get points equal to how many points you have. And then there's 20 seconds and everything resets. Oh, I see. And mm. so it's like fast. It's like speed. It's like almost like speed dating, but like speed capture points. <laughs> and so um there's huge amounts of strategy. So when the game starts, it's very unlikely that you're going to be able to get your opponent's capture point because they'll simply be closer to it and they'll lock it faster. Um, so the start, the race is, there's a trade-off. Do you get your own point and fight for the middle in the hopes that you can then maintain those two? Or do you sacrifice the first one to get a position behind your opponent so that when the second set, cause you don't move, like it doesn't reset people's positions. It just resets the capture points. So if you start off with one team on one side of the map and the other team on the other side of the map, and then it's a race for the three points, the second race for the three points begins wherever the fuck people are at the beginning of that race. Yeah. And it's a completely different set of strategic so you can let the opposition cap, but then be in a position to yeah. cap harder. <laughs> you can cap. So like a really good way is like, say your opponent goes all in on capturing the middle in the first round. Right. Fucking let them and then get yours and theirs in the second round. or just hold those two mm. and they're in the middle of the map. And they kind of then have to pick a direction to go in, at which point you can kind of flow around them. And it's... But you're, looking, you're looking for that. You've got to grab that middle point, right? To actually cash in on that. Um... No, because you basically... So it's a, it's first to 16. Hmm. So as long as you're getting two of them, you're always ahead. Hmm. And it doesn't matter which two. But never hold three. You can get all three. Well, getting all three is hard. You're not going to hold all three, though. You're not, probably not going to hold all three. You probably should commit to two because that's mm. enough to get and maintain an advantage. But that's super interesting. Yeah, like, it's if cool. you're interesting in like... So that on top of the inherent complexity of the classes and the skill cap there is yeah. like where this game exists. This does. I see why you refer to this as like UT, like the best UT total version. Because I remember like I'm tournament had that joust map where it was CTF, but you started in the enemy base. So you capped their flag immediately, or you took their flag immediately, but you still had to get it to your base, yeah, which yeah. was their base. And it was also insta-jib, or at least I play it with insta-jib. And so it was just like one long corridor where you kill each other in one hit, and all you've got to do is get to the other end. And uh, that's that's the kind of remix that this sounds yeah, like. Yeah, yeah. Also, it's extremely lethal. Like, you die fucking quickly. Okay. And everyone has alts. So, hmm. like, you get, uh, yeah, and so... What's the... Sorry, do you respawn quickly, or...? Yeah, it's like yeah, three or four okay. seconds. Like, okay, it's, it's, well, I'm kind of fine with that. Yeah, it's, it's like, it's just hard. It's just super hardcore, basically. Like, right, it's, right. it's it's like there's, um, you know, were it not for the modern presentation and the loot boxes and things, it would feel very old, old school. Hmm. It's funny. It's it's packed with like, it, it's sense of humor and it's voice acting and stuff is a little bit lame in the way that these kinds of like 90s inspired shooters tend to be. <laughs> I actually quite like its character designs. I think they're quite kind of distinct. Like it feels like this game and not anything else. Hmm. Um but, um, like, it's got, like, its achievements have loads of references to things like Austin Powers. And I was kind of thinking about it, like, does this shooter, we like, <laughs> what, yeah. what elements of this shooter audience born there? <laughs> that was a while ago. Yeah. Like, um, it does feel like, uh, I described it on Twitter today as, like, Clifford's retirement home for 90s FPS players. <laughs> and it does feel like that. Like, I, I genuinely really, really like it. And it does everything I want a shooter to do in terms of, skill cap and cool moments of plays and like i mean i must have said on the pod like 
for me, multiplayer shooters stopped being as exciting as they ever could be as soon as Capture the Flag stopped being the thing that people mm-hmm. do in these games. Like, Capture the Flag is the, best, awesome, yeah. is the best thing. And this is a game with, like, three different versions of CTF in it. There's a, there's a beautiful window where um, Titanfall 1 had CTF. Mm. And I think they, like, they tried to take it out and then had to put it back. So. Yeah. <laughs> but it was fucking great. So good. Especially with robots. Yeah. It's just, it's the best. It creates so many moments of yeah. drama. And, like, this is the great thing about Lawbreakers, I think, is that you know, both of those different variants I mentioned, the stealing, the, the one where your base charges up when the flag is there and the one where the flag charges up when the flag is there, mm. both create different moments of drama, like stealing a fully charged battery at the moment when it's ready and capping that to win a game feels great. Similarly, knowing that your opponent's base is fully charged and they just need to basically touch it with the transmitter to score changes the dynamic of that chase, even though mm. it's fundamentally the same kinds of things like chasing flag cappers and stuff yeah. that I've always been doing in tribes. Like... I really, I, I don't even do like it. I do have concerns about its longevity because there isn't a lot to it at the moment other than that. And that's plenty of game if that's what you want, but that's what it is. So, so TF2 had CTF and it kind of, um, it was always a bit secondary and it, it also fell further and further out of popularity uh, to the point that, you know, two fort will always be around, but it, I feel like in the latter days of TF2, I never played a CTF map for it. It was always control point or... Um, or the other things and the problem in that game was that they had given you so many good ways to entrench that when there is literally only one place you have to defend uh mm. it's too easy to just properly defend it and mm. make it basically impenetrable i remember in the like the wild west like very early days of tf2 when a scout could go on the rooftops between two foot yeah and could be successful pretty much 50 percent of the time like it felt like a proper gamble really exciting yeah so people learned all the engineer spots and all the turret spots and stuff i think that's the thing is lawbreakers has defensive potential class defensive classes the verticality of, of almost all the classes means that defending is hard mm. like you know, is there like a turret class no okay that's good Hooray. um there's <laughs> yeah. a there's a robot that can create a wall like throw up a force field wall to block a doorway mm-hmm. but it's on a cooldown and it's a super strategic thing because also it's it's like it also blocks your own friendly projectiles and things like the medic class's ultimate creates like a dome shield but that can completely screw up your own team because it blocks projectiles coming in and out. Sure. <laughs> so if your team, rest of your team is relied on like long range DPS and you yeah, throw up yeah. a bubble around the enemy team, <laughs> then you've just saved them. Basically. What are you doing, Baz? Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's very heavily weight, was very heavily weighted towards offen- offense, which creates it more exciting. But also, um, something that I, uh, I was playing it this afternoon with, um, friend of the pod, Owen Hill, um, Owen Jones now, actually, um, at who, um, and we, we sort of noticed that like one of the interesting things about it from a design point of view is most modern team shooters overwatch being the perfect example are extremely slow to show the well relatively extremely slow to show the impact of a for example a successful team fight or a pickoff kill or something like that in the momentum of the game or your progress towards an objective mm-hmm. so you wipe the enemy team. That's great. What that translates to practically is like you move the, the payload 8% further before they show up again to defend it. And sometimes you get the big swing where you manage to get the payload all the way to the end or something like that. But that tends to happen towards the end of the game. Hmm. And that's not a bad thing. It makes it very accessible. It means that the result of your actions is there, but failure and success are never quite so punishing as when the game is just fucking over, right? If you know what you're doing, the maps in, in Lawbreakers aren't massive. And if you know what you're doing with the movement system... You can get a dropped flag 
from your opponent's base to your own in like four and a half seconds if you can move fast <laughs> enough it's that tribes thing of like okay i know how to chain together my boosts and jumps and slides and grapples and whatever i'm just gone hmm. and so the stakes for fucking up are really high but also it means the impact of a successful play is felt immediately like things just change and you can see it get swept away from you like you're like yeah we're charging the battery it's at 100 percent. we've got five seconds left on the countdown fuck they've got it oh fuck it's gone oh fuck it's in their base fuck they've just scored and it's just like that <laughs> yeah and it's because you weren't on it for a second and that is a downside when it comes to the game being like friendly because you don't you don't you don't, you don't fuck up and the enemy gets to push the payload a little bit further back it's like you fuck up and you just lost but the excitement of pulling that off and the drama that creates is something I really missed, I think. Because I think the, one of the reasons that CTF went away is because payload modes and capture point modes are much more slow burn, right? Like, payload is just one flag CTF with a really fucking slow flag hmm. that, you know, it has some of the drama of chasing and pushing and defending and map control and all the other things. But it doesn't have the space for just sort of single moments of chance and chaos and things that can make that stuff feel uncontrollable. Hmm. It's really obvious to every player what's important. Uh, uh, the thing I love about payload maps, especially in TF2, is that the more you get to know them, the more you get to know the hygiene spots and the angles on each uh, throughout each point of the map hmm. as it gradually goes from point to point. It's, it feels like a very organic capture point system almost. It's not like, oh, now we're on B cap and the, these are the points that you know have sight on this particular cap is that you know there are organically changing sight lines on a payload mm. uh, that if a map is extremely well designed as um valve's initial payload maps were really really good like you would there'll be shifting sight lines that you'd learn and you know you have to clear out this balcony with certain classes in order to let mm. that payload go forward and I, I think the payload is there's lots to be recommended for that but i'm really excited by the idea of bringing back that kind of high lethality shooter and my worry for Lawbreakers is that um, even visually, it has fallen into... It's like the Dota card game thing, right? Everyone's going to look at that and think it's just a bandwagoning overwatch mm. clone. And and that's the thing they have to go, kind of try and escape from and try and appeal to the people who used to love those games, try and get them in. And I've not really seen anything from Lawbreakers that would actually drag in the kind of hardcore FPS crowd. In fact, I think most people who'd be going in would be like... I don't know, like uh, Overwatch players or people who, you know, enjoy those relatively, uh, not that Overwatch is casual, but relatively casual, um, you know, mm. team shooters who go into this thing and just get messed up. Yeah. I mean, uh, how, how do you present it? I don't know. I think, I think they're trying their best. Like I think I've seen like all the adverts I've seen for it have stressed like the skill cap and stuff. Mm. I think the other side of it actually, and, and it is just a di difference. Like both games absolutely can and should exist. It's just nice to have this back. Sure. is Lawbreakers doesn't have a front line. I think that's the thing that a, a payload creates. It's yeah, like a, yeah. a, front, sure. a clear front line. Like, And the best definition of that in Overwatch, the clearest visual representation of it is like Reinhardt's shield. Yeah. Like Overwatch is traditionally like a game around, well, at the, at the level most people play it at, a game around two competing Reinhardts, right? And their friends. <laughs> and the, so the trade of battle across a, a relatively clear and consistent front line with yeah. some characters that can subvert that a little bit, but never a lot. Whereas... Because the center of every Lawbreakers map is usually the zero-G area. So it's usually like a central zero-G bubble with like normal G, 1G, Earth-G. <laughs> yeah, 1G. 1G. Um, corridors and bases and things surrounding that. It means that literally the point in the map where the front line would traditionally be is fucking chaos. 
where everything is happening in like 360 degrees in every dimension, which is a direct rejection of that form of like corridor kind of corridors and roads and lane yeah, based yeah. shooter design. Mm. And it's great to have both. It's great to have that mode where it's like bases you can understand and you're standing on the floor everywhere else. And also everyone's got a jetpack, so no one's on the floor anyway, but like, <laughs> but everywhere else is just this kind of mad scramble where your ability to manipulate your character in low gravity to land skill shots at range and at close up and to manipulate your abilities properly is all that matters. Mm. That's really interesting tension. I think it's fundamentally less readable than that battle of front lines. I think it's less accessible as a consequence. And I think that will hurt it, even though, I don't know, it's super interesting. I'm super glad that they made it. It's yeah, just, yeah. is it doomed? Did it, how, Did it come out yesterday? Yeah. That was the full release? How? I didn't hear anything about it, I have to say. <laughs> and I have heard a lot about yeah, it so, over development. I've heard a lot, you know, I've been aware of this, of what trailer is, and it's, it's been on my radar, and I didn't know it came out yesterday. <laughs> yeah, this is what's weird about it, is, is it came out yesterday, and it's had a beta, and some positive buzz about it. But, like, I wasn't even sure if I was supposed to be talking about it, because I'm, I'm reviewing <laughs> it. Um, and I was like, is it embargoed? No one's talking about it. Am <laughs> I, it's a weird, like, I wanted to post a GIF, and it's fine, it's out. It's yeah. just, yeah, it's like, it's been very quiet. What were you going to ask? Uh, I was going to ask him how readable actual combat is in terms of, I mean, I think I, I loved UT, uh, UT4 especially. And I think a lot of its weapons were incredibly readable, especially its rocket launchers and that kind of thing. Mm. Um, and I, I wondered how like splitting that over a series of classes with lots of different innate loadouts actually complicated that. So each class has one or two weapons. And that's mm. the only weapon that class has. There is no, laudably, there is no upgrades loadouts anything for okay. classes at all right. you have no, you get um you know every kind of cosmetic upgrade you can think of but there's progress means absolutely nothing for your in-game power set hmm. whatsoever so uh, you, you you can learn the sound of a weapon or yeah the sight of a weapon and, and uh they've done a decent amount of work to visually differentiate it's specifically the weapons because obviously the visual design of the characters is slightly different team by team yeah um with obviously similarities but the weapons are the thing that really defines them and movement styles so the moment you see a grapple you know exactly what class that is um and the way they stand so because there's a few there's, there's basically like three variants on the kind of flanking assassin there's a two guns guy who has a submachine gun on one hand and like a hand cannon on the other hmm. um there's a two knives lady who can switch to a shotgun but she's the one with the grapple so it's kind of obvious when she's moving around and uh, and then the two guns guy can teleport, which no one else can. And there's a guy with a knife and a gun who holds them in this kind of like crossed over way, um, which is slightly harder to pick up initially, but you do figure it out basically very quickly. Mm. Like, like the mini gun lady is kind of the flag chaser. She has a jetpack, but it propels her like a plane, whereas the other kind of jetpack characters tend to go directly upwards. So she kind of like goes forwards. Right. And you just figure this stuff out. Like, For some reason, this is triggering a memory of the book title, The Seven People You'll Meet in Heaven. <laughs> it's like two lady. guns guy, two <laughs> knives lady, gun and knife guy. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Like, so yeah, I think it's, it's got, a, it's a game. When I started playing it, I was like, I don't know what the fuck is going on. And now six hours in, I really like it and basically just want to play it all the time. Hmm. I think every aspect of it has that. Like all of the modes take a little while to twig why sure. they're different. All of the classes take a while to talk why they're different. And then learning, oh, this guy's good at this range. Because you die very quickly. So sometimes you just get 
like a lot of like the, the melee stuff is like insta kill on a lot of the lighter or medium classes yeah. so sometimes just someone fucking just flies out of nowhere and you explode in a pile of gyms <laughs> and you're like well what do i learn from that but you do kind of learn mm-hmm. and that's that's the benefit of time and experience like it's not unfair it's just like so i give you an example the, car- the class i love the harrier has a laser rifle which is very very long range kind of like beam you hold down the mouse button to fire a continuous beam so it's not going to kill anyone instantly it's but it's quite good with sustained fire you yep. can kind of a big deep clip it's alt fire fires like a kind of one shot dart that is like a skill shot like pretty long ranged and does some damage but it tags an opponent so they take more damage from all sources so in a duel your way to beat someone who maybe has better burst fire than you do because they've got like a shotgun or a damaging melee weapon is to tag them first and then kite them so that you can keep applying damage with your laser rifle Hmm. and that's where the laser shoes come in because you can obviously jet yourself up and around them but you can also jet backwards which means that you're both you're giving them you're shooting at them but you're also lasering them with your feet yeah and you know when i started playing i felt completely vulnerable to assassins you could get on top of me where my slow damaging long-range weapon was completely useless and they would just slash at me twice and i would die and now i've realized that like those classes tend not to have like great vertical mobility apart from like maybe a double jump but it's not as good as a jetpack so i get above them and then i try and land the sort of snap snapshot right click tagging thing which takes you know quick aim that's like sort of old insta jib instincts of like you're just gonna land one important shot and then you just fry them with your boots while you're above them and they can't get at you and you can kind of kite them in that way and pulling that off feels great but it requires a particular understanding of that matchup and how to play it yeah and sometimes it doesn't work and sometimes someone else shoots you with a rocket while you're not looking and other things and that's the, that's the game um i think it's fine to have that I love high lethality with high respawn, like really short respawn timers. Mm. I think that's fine. Like, um, I get cross when I get sniped in Battlefield. Yeah. And then there I are no to, snipers. I have to run for three minutes to get back anywhere near the fight and I'm completely displaced from my teammates. That, yeah. That's why I hate bad shooters. I don't mind arena shooters being fast respawn of high lethality. Yeah. That's, that's the interesting thing about it. Actually, thinking about it, there are no turrets and there are no sniper rifles, mm. which is an interesting Both pair good. of things to, <laughs> yeah, remove, to remove from games. Right? Removals, it yeah. has, it has the quake rocket launcher and it has the quake lightning gun and it yeah, has yeah, yeah. mini guns and assault rifles and pistols and hand cannons and melee weapons, but it, it doesn't really have anything that allows you to kind of like, that encourages you to stay still. Like yeah, the, the yeah. one class in the game that can hold down a point with like heavy armor and deployable shield and stuff only has a shotgun. Hmm. So you're, if you want to hold down a point and be useful, you kind of have to be mobile. Um, and that's the trade off. Yeah. It's, 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 it's a well designed game. Yeah. So that's awesome. I, I hope people play it and like it if that's the kind of thing they're into. Um, hmm. because at the moment, uh, the final thing I'd say about it, at the moment, the player population is sufficient that you get a game instantly. What I would say is matchmaking feels very inconsistent in that I have been in... So balanced games feel amazing and they're very, very close and all of those amazingly well-designed objectives play to the game's strengths and it can feel very tense and you can turn around games at the last minute and all the good stuff. When a game is one-sided, either based on skill or because of levers, because at the moment there isn't really a great penalty for people abandoning matches and they do, hmm. it can be a total fucking stomp. And it can feel very one-sided. And I don't know if the game necessarily has, in the first case, like, I don't know how strong the matchmaking is. Hopefully it'll improve over time. And obviously early days of a game, there are a lot of new players coming in. There's going to be a lot of people with different experience levels. Hmm. And you learn so much so quickly that there's a big difference between have played for two hours and haven't played at all. 
the other side of it is that there's there's no like um what was gonna say because there's no punishment for leaving there's a there's a sort of a chance element with your teammates that could feel very unsatisfactory and that applies more broadly because it's a game where um the presence of a healer can make a big difference this is the old overwatch problem when everyone just wants to play the cool ninja man games can feel completely unwinnable in a way that isn't a lot of fun it feels a lot less class dependent than overwatch does for example you can easily win without a traditional healer i feel like it's to play i feel like it's odd there's a healer in that mix if it is that highly lethality arena game yeah the healer is super good but not as essential as like a mercy like there's only one mm. really there are two classes that can heal um, one of them is the one I play and it does it in a very non-traditional way. There's only one traditional, like, I can heal you class. Yeah. And even then, they're on the sort of Zenyatta end of the healer design, where it's like healing is something they do sort of as a sideshow for the fact that they also own a grenade launcher. Yeah. Um, but their presence can feel like it makes a big difference. Actually, I'll tell you what, the biggest thing is the presence of a varied team makeup feels like it makes a big difference. Having people who can hold a position, having people who are very mobile, having people who do a lot of damage, having a balance of characters feels very rewarding and that's where the game is best played. What happens is because as ever, the the internet men gravitate towards the cool ninjas and the dual wielding gun guys, you end up with kind of like League of Hanzos where nothing can happen <laughs> because everybody is trying to be the fucking cool ninja man all the yeah. time and that's a problem i don't know how you get around that well like, you don't make a, a, a overwatch s class game you make you know um unreal tournament 2k4 yeah. where everyone can be whatever gun you pick up that's true yeah it's, it's interesting like it's not a, it's not a crippling decision because yeah. it doesn't apply to every game but you do definitely have the games where you're like why are we all gun man or two guns <laughs> man or one gun one knife man hmm. or two lives lady why those three I feel like the the class element of arena shooters might might be a bit of a you know you're going to make something new kind of buying into that whole everyone has a role thing and uh, you know rather than just a big old fight over points mm. might might be I don't know I say I've not played the game so I'm certainly not going to call it an error but I think it's it's a risky decision especially if you don't want to be associated with all those other arena shooters that there are so many true i think it been like yeah i think it's a i think it's a trade-off rather than a risky decision sure. like i think it gains i think well, actually, i think it grants the game some clarity they might not otherwise have okay like it helps them recontextualize things as, as you know it helps them kind of offer some context for like why it's interesting to be jetpack person or why it's interesting to be rocket launcher lady mm. in a way that simply having those as weapon pickups or something wouldn't have like the the sort of the way you kind of inf like it helps you structure a team in a way that makes sense to people who maybe not familiar with this kind of game be interested to see how a uh, new quake arena mm. tackles this as well because it's going with a again the very fashionable class uh class-based thing yeah and i think there are, i think there are things to learn from modern shooters that yeah. those old games can learn i think i wonder this seems like such a common problem here it's a problem in tf2 it's a problem in overwatch problem in this i wonder if anyone's tried something where like, if every player had a kind of vote that they could say, hey, we really need, like, a Mercy or whatever, and they put their vote on Mercy, and if you go Mercy then, that just that's just a multiplier to your points. So it doesn't get you anything, like, material necessarily, but on the scoreboard you'll be right at the top because you're doing the thing everyone wants you to do. It's more about blame. It's more about, um, often those roles tend to take on, like, a huge amount of significance. And if your team fails, then the the healer is often blamed for that like you see that in with mercy and overwatch like right. a bad mercy and overwatch gets you know all the shit because 
you know they're blamed for not resing everyone at the the right point and it almost puts too much you know too much pressure on one player in a given fighter team to actually carry everyone i was always in battlefield 2 i was always really motivated to be a medic because uh, for one thing medic was no disadvantage at all if you wanted to be a combat player as well because their gun was fucking awesome um but also, like, I got points for healing people, I got points for resing people, and I would be a squad leader as well. But then you're on a team of 20 people, that's the, yeah, it disseminates it's, it's, that it's bigger teams. Right. Um, but I just remember how, like, satisfying it was to be, I was both supporting my team, and I was also top of the scoreboard, and that mm. just felt really good, and I would do it every time, even if I, even if the moment-to-moment thing was less enjoyable than being pure assault, I would still do that, because it was like, look, look at the scoreboard, I'm so valuable. <laughs> I think, um, it's Lawbreaker's credit. I don't think it's issues with how people play are or hundred percent class oriented. Like, I don't think mm. you need a healer to succeed. I don't think it's like okay. the lack of that frontline game means that you don't necessarily like. If you are good enough with those like assassin characters, you can easily win a game that way. But it's down to a how good you are. So like often those are the sort of like glass cannon characters that if they're bad are really, really bad. Yeah. And so that's a bigger trade off, right? You almost want to push new players towards the kind of characters with a bit of a chunkier health bar who aren't quite as fast, but are more reliably good. Yeah. That's, that's one consideration. The other is just about decision making. And that's one of the things that's actually harder to kind of get around than a simple class imbalance. Like you see this a lot in the blitz ball mode where you have to try and score a goal in your opponent's half. And there's a persistent problem I found with solo matchmaking where people really don't want to defend, like, ever. They don't really want to be in their own backfield at all. Mm. So um one game I won because we'd gotten to its first eight and both teams were tied at 7-7. Seven, seven. And it was just a fucking crapshoot because everyone was scoring. It got that that point so quickly because as soon as someone got the ball, they would score because no one was defending. So there was this constant battle over the ball, but no one was able to chase or or and no one was there to receive a, an incoming capper and stop them from capping so what i did was change to the robot man who puts a wall up and stand on the point for the rest of the game and whenever the opponent got the ball i saw because you can see the ball carrier through walls and stuff because they're highlighted which way they were going and there were two doorways into the capture point and i would just wall off the other one the one they were going for yeah and they would get killed by my team and that was it and I didn't participate in the game at all. I just waited for the one time when my team managed to finally get the ball. It's not the shooter it. you want to be playing, though, is it? No, but it was like I was like, how do I win this match? And it's because that's the that's the issue really is with the matchmaking is when you get a team that really just does the kind of we just want to fight in the midfield thing. A, some of the modes are more winnable than others, but also the way you have to play to kind of adapt to that is sometimes more satisfying than others. Like some yeah. of the modes suit chaos where everyone's just fighting, chasing kills, and no one gives a shit about the objective. Mm. But some of the modes don't, and that's not necessarily a consistently enjoyable experience. Like trying to play, there's a mode where there's a single capture point that moves around the map and you get points by being the team that owns it. And so sometimes it's going to be in your opponent's half, sometimes it's going to be in your half, but you've just got to try and hold it for more of that time regardless. And you just get a lot of teammates who just don't give a shit. They just don't care about the point. And so you lose and there's nothing you can do. And it's nothing to do with what characters they're playing or the presence of healers or mm. anything like that. It's just the random chance of matchmaking and decision making and how fun it is to be on a team when people don't necessarily want to play the same game that you do and i don't know if any team game can get around that really. well yeah exactly this is why i mean team deathmatch does because you yes, in its kill true. right um and that's why deathmatch has existed and maybe maybe it should have it maybe yeah but so who knows i'm interested to see how it evolves like yeah, yeah it the game's great. ranked and things like that mm. 
when it comes to like um actually talking about like uh like silhouettes and archetypes and stuff just to backtrack way back to the dosha discussion several hours ago now um uh i think that cosmetics have made the game incredibly hard to read even yeah, as someone who's been watching the game for a couple of years now um particularly because it changes the way abilities look and sound mm. that's the main thing is like abilities i'm used to looking and sounding a certain way are now completely different and even and lots of um heroes in dose 2 which have like a low crouch profile look identical if they all have like arcana or just crazy ass items on them like a little scarab beetle who is glittering looks the same to me as like um the fucking oh, what's his name the um, the werewolf guy lichen Lycan, who has like a glittering arcana, like it's it's really hard to tell them apart. Like they've they've started to break like the color code they designed themselves and things, so they're adding red and gold to characters that didn't previously have red and gold yeah. and that kind of thing. I, I, I find the game much harder to read because of that simple mm. change. Actually, so yeah. the other day I had a stress dream where I was hired by Valve to come up with a new form of cosmetic for Dota because they needed <laughs> a new thing they could add to characters yeah. to kind of visually or differentiate them. And I came up with the idea of doing custom auto attack sound effect packs. So every character would sound different if you added a, you added, added a sound pack to them, which resulted in characters that would previously hit with like a sword sound effect, hitting with like a kind of horse cloppy noise. <laughs> and that was my job. Well, and I had solved. Good job. <laughs> And you have dozens of you people, yeah, exactly. dozens of people rolling their desks into the the, the sound effect manufacturing studio yeah. where you create increasingly <laughs> zany, for like last hit sounds for yeah. Dota heroes. And that's the kind of dream you have when you don't go to the international. <laughs> Shall we do questions? Yeah, yeah. From questions. Why are we doing it in this voice? I don't know. Metal Gear. <laughs> We're all hiding in bushes. Exposition voice. <laughs> I don't know why that's my, like, David Hater Solid Snake association. <laughs> I miss voice. David Hater. Oh, me come too. Back, come me back too. to games. For some reason, I think the phrase, Lalu Lely Low, all the time, <laughs> despite not having played those Metal Gear games in, yeah. in forever. Anyway, that's a fact no one asked for. Speaking of facts people did ask for, it's time for questions. Duncan writes, Why doesn't every game have gliders? Excellent question. They should. Um, Some games are 4X strategy games. <laughs> Nonetheless. <laughs> yeah, any open world game where you can get some height should also give you a, a satisfying and fun way to get rid of that height. <laughs> to squander that height. Mm. <laughs> Zelda, great glider. Yep. Oh, my Switch is... Just you, Cause is obviously great. My Switch is coming on Monday. <gasps> I've got Mario Kart, I've got Zelda, they're on my mantelpiece. But with no <laughs> Switch to play. With them. Oh, you're in, you're in for a treat. Oh, you're in for a Zelda-y treat. I've the got a massive horse. In Zelda. Sorry. That was a non sequitur, but it's true. I was thinking either this is in Zelda or Mario Kart, and I was, it took me too long to figure out which one it would be. Zelda. You're lovely. The boxes for Switch games are tiny, and then you open them, Even and tiny. the thing itself is like 1% of that tiny size. I, I thought, like, if I, if I inhale this, could I be Zelda? <laughs> <laughs> uh, reasonable question. For every seven-year-old ever. That's a new warning that I'll have to put on the box now. <laughs> yeah, because they had to put something up to say, don't eat them, right? They oh. always have to do that, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. like they put some kind of, I don't want to say poison, <laughs> they put some kind of uh, distasteful substance Apparently on them. So, not... was that, was, hang on, wasn't that another one of these myths? Oh, was it a myth? I thought that was one, of, again, I speaking, of, speaking of things that become prime content, but then go away very quickly. <laughs> um, there was a, there was a, there was a big thing about games journalists, like tentatively like tasting switch cartridges yeah. for a while. Hmm. 
and it felt like everyone seemed to agree that they tasted gross, but that felt like it could have been just a mass hallucination, like <laughs> confirmation mean, it bias. It wouldn't surprise me, well, even the if there was no, nothing put on it. It just like, does taste Yeah, yeah It doesn't taste like, like mm, wow, well, yeah, it tastes like Mario. I'll have another one. It's <laughs> so Moorish. It tastes like Nintendo candy floss, as I expected. <laughs> anyway, question. What was the question? It tastes like, like the uh, wild. Why don't every game have gliders? Oh, also? well. Why should you no stop eating Switch games? Yes. I'm going to lick my uh, Breath of the Wild cartridge. And ruin it before I even had a chance <laughs> to put it in my Switch. That's why I got Tense the, di- that's why I got the digital version um, downloaded oh, straight to the Switch. Just um, Well, partly because I had the opposite problem where the Switch was in stock, but all of the games are out of stock. Oh. Um, but um, but also just to save myself the temptation, because you can't eat. You could try and eat the controllers, but that's not going to be easy. They, they don't eat any of it. Is the best. <laughs> it looks like the best yeah. But yeah, the whole thing, super chewable. Hmm. Man, it's good being a dog. Um, the... <laughs> Uh, gliders, they're good. In the right game. If you need to fall off something, gliders. Best gliders. Far Cry's got great gliders. Mm. Yep. Um, Just Cause wingsuit. Oh, yeah. Just Cause 3's wingsuit. Top glider variant. Like it. Yep. Good. Why don't all games have them? Because, yeah. There was, so in Elder Scrolls, uh, Morrowind has Levitate and Oblivion and Skyrim does not, do not. Um, and it's because it was too hard to account for you being able to get absolutely anywhere mm-hmm. <laughs> at absolutely any time. So they do things in Skyrim where like the exit to a dungeon is higher up than the entrance and they know you can't get to it. Yeah. Yeah. Boring. <laughs> but you can jump you know, off it. Yeah. To be honest, gliders don't, it don't conflict with that. You know, no, you can true. still have a glider as long as you can only get to places that are lower than you. Mm. It's, that's reasonably controlled. Hmm. Exactly. No excuses. <laughs> Gliders. Next question comes from Ben, who writes, As someone who has only just got a gaming-worthy PC after years on PS4, what are some of the best PC games I've missed from the last three years or so? That's a test, gentlemen. Remember oh anything that's happened for the last three years. <laughs> well, Dishonored 2. Hey. Yay! <laughs> just play that. <laughs> that's good. I mean, it's it's a good thing we recorded th- four years of a podcast about <laughs> PC yeah. games. You got an easy reference there. Presumably, we talked at some point about the best games to come out during that time. Yeah, did we? Like, Downside the to the year, structure yeah. of this podcast, we don't remember any of it. <laughs> Listen to our Christmas episodes; they're the ones where we yeah. uh, do proper recaps of the year. Uh, I can't remember what on earth we called our Christmas episodes. The, I mean, they, we didn't give them any specific names. So the last two are on YouTube as full videos with people and that. Yeah. Which you can watch. Those are those are pretty comprehensive, actually. I think we're probably hence them lasting four hours. The worst <laughs> yeah, that's true. In, we're probably the worst qualified people in the world to ask this question because hmm. I really don't remember, <laughs> but I definitely know. Yeah, you can if you went to like our YouTube uh, uploads section, you would see a whole load of videos, one for every podcast, but the ones where you can see us would yeah. be the the Christmas ones, and there's the ones where we recount our games of the year. Yeah, yeah. indeed. Um, Metal Gear Solid Five springs to mind as like a. But he had a PS4, so he might. Uh, maybe he's done it. Yeah. Mm. Far Cry Primal. Mm. I had a PS4. Yeah, but I bet he didn't play it. <laughs> I kept no, no fucking like played. Life is strange, but if you had yeah, a PS4, it's he gone might. over now. Yeah. Have you played all Life is Strange yet, Tom? No. Um, I'm. I'm not going to say anything about what has happened, but I've. We've just hit the start of episode four. Okay. So oh, enormous you, things have happened. You're on the home stretch. Yeah. yeah. Sweet. It's great. Yeah, yeah. It's great, isn't it? Yeah, I really yeah. like it. Was Invisible Ink the last three years? Yeah, surely. If it's not, yeah, then I'm having a time problem. <laughs> <laughs> you should play that. It's very good. That is very good. 
Good. All right, we didn't answer that, but we pointed in the direction of previous versions of ourselves who can help. Our next question's a long one and comes from Nathan, who writes, I'm just rotating myself so I can both read and talk. Dear sturdy wooden shipping container and stout iron pry bar intended as a means to open said container. I've sometimes thought of frequently used conventions in game design as a dialect through which game designers concisely communicate with the player. For example, while in a game, the escape key will open a menu and while in a menu, escape will take you back out to the game. These conventions where applicable are almost always true because if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But some words in this dialect that game designers use to speak to us veer into the bizarrely specific. Picture this scene. You're playing a video game and you have just defeated a boss. Your celebration is cut short by the sudden realization this boss was a load-bearing boss. The dank cave slash creepy castle slash space battleship in which you find yourself is collapsing around you. As the cutscene ends and you're given control of your character, you barely notice the bossy secondary character saying, You've got to get out of there! But what are you doing instead? You're scanning the edges of the screen for something that was not there before the cutscene. A timer counting down. You know that if there is a timer, it tells you exactly how long you have to reach some magical finish line or else you will die from a massive explosion and or falling rocks. You also know that if there is no timer, you can safely ignore the bossy secondary character and take your sweet goddamn time because the only thing that will actually trigger the impending structural collapse is the crossing of that magical finish line followed by a cutscene of your hero barely making it out alive. Contrary to all common sense, it's actually in your interest to dawdle least you miss some useful loot. After nearly three decades of gaming, I've seen this scenario many times in many games, and every time it is played out as I have described, I'm sure a few exceptions exist, keep them to yourself. It's such a bizarre shorthand to communicate a specific, complicated concept. If game, divine, game design conventions are indeed a dialect, then surely this is one of those wacky German 18-word pile-ups. While one could argue that this dialect being robust and expansive allows for efficient communication between the game designer and player, the other side of that coin is that it could create significant barriers to entry for new players. But none of this is a question, as you've noticed, so here you go. Is there anything to be gained from challenging this dialect, or are there simply too many babies in that bathwater? Can you think of any other hilariously specific examples of this dialect? Cheers from the colonies, Nathan. We had a very uh, long-running problem with heat signature where if you trigger an alarm, there is then a countdown. And at the end of that countdown, you'll be captured if you're still aboard the ship, which is super, super important to know. You really need to know this information. And so we put a very big countdown on screen. Um, actually, for a while, it was a progress bar, a big red progress bar in the middle of the screen. And people didn't notice it. Then we changed it to a giant countdown on top of the screen. People didn't notice it. And then we tried so many things and just still so many people were like, I just got captured. I don't know why. And it's like, that was a I watched them play. And I was like, there's a giant fucking countdown telling you. It wasn't even like implicit. Not only was the number huge, but the words, you will be captured in this many <laughs> seconds was right there on screen. Hmm. And we couldn't get people to notice it. And I was like joking to... uh other game developer friends of like you know sharing war stories of this they've all had these these problems um and i was saying like i think i'm just gonna make that thing that message get bigger and bigger <laughs> until it literally consumes the entire screen if you won't fucking read it it's literally gonna be the only thing you can see i'll just take away the game world from you until there's just a black screen with this message on it saying the fucking alarm is at four <laughs> fucking seconds will you do something about it 
Uh, we didn't do that. <laughs> what we did instead is, uh, uh, it is still just a countdown on top of the screen, um, explains what it does. But in addition to that, there is a border that goes around the whole screen, yeah. uh, which is bright orange. And in addition to that, there is a kind of haze that encroaches from the side of the screen, like a kind of glow around the edge of the screen that's also orange. In addition to that, uh, the strength of that pulses and the pulsing needs to not only happen in general, but also to get more intense and more rapid as the countdown goes down. Because there's A, do you notice it in the first place? And we make that, you know, as sure as we possibly can that you will notice it. But if you fail to notice it, we need a whole separate other chance for you to notice it when it gets down to like seven seconds because that's the time when it's like if you <laughs> if you currently are not in the process of escaping this ship it's because you haven't noticed this and so we need to do something even more and so that's when it's like the border encroaches you know to like take up 20 percent of the screen and it's throbbing and it's fucking flashing there's an alarm going off during this as well um and no i heard that when it gets to three seconds if you uh just momentarily sit back from the game you'll hear outside of your window for wherever you're playing the game the sound of tom francis going come on (laughs) (laughs) yep anyway it seems to work now we've actually not only we no no longer get those complaints but i've had a few people specifically say oh i really like that it's super clear when there's an alarm going on (laughs) yes it fucking is i think um yeah the the question ever rightly identifies that it's unusual that people would scan all corners and sides of a screen yeah. for a prompt and in fact um i was playing gta online with uh pc game guys phil savage and uh samuel roberts and we were doing the heist and one of the heists suddenly introduces a time limit and it's expressed um like through a a small countdown on the bottom left hand of the screen uh in the same font as all the other stuff as you might as you know presumably do and we it wasn't until halfway through the mission we noticed it and it's a six minute countdown <laughs> and we play games like all every day <laughs> and we still didn't notice it and uh, perhaps you know don't underestimate people's the, the the fact that people are concentrating on the action in the middle of the screen rather than actually reading the outer screen all the time well i guess the the point there is that like in both cases the information was being introduced to an environment where you felt like you knew all the rules and everything that could happen it's a new thing which is right? the point of this yeah. dialect idea right which is one, another way of saying kind of received game design wisdom mm. the players absorb and therefore assume uh which came up earlier in the hellblade discussion in yeah. a different context that people kind of assume things work a certain way and when it doesn't they're more willing to rush into a game assuming they know how everything works and they are to kind of assume that each new game starts from scratch because games traditionally don't mm. and it's a really interesting thing to try and get around like to bring it back to another early discussion, I think it's an issue for lawbreakers because lawbreakers <laughs> breaks the law, <laughs> if you will. Um, it, it, well, it, it challenges, it, it does a lot of different things different. Like it requires you to spend a little bit of time to understand how it's doing CTF differently and how yeah. it's doing DPS and medics and tanks differently. And it requires, it requires a one rather than a zero in your willingness to kind of learn something new. And that feels like a genuine barrier to success for games, I think. Mm. Like, um, the ideal, the ideal is really that something doesn't really require new learning so much as sort of the quick and easy adaptation of existing learning to translate it into a new form with immediate results, right? Like, that seems to be the, the rule. Like, something mm-hmm. like Player Unknown's Battlegrounds, which is very successful because it builds quality and sustainability and repeatability out of a template that by that point 
everybody who was playing survival games or or battle royale games on pc already knew inside out its success comes out of a very specific vocabulary that's being already been established done well rather than out of true originality Hmm. it's interesting uh world of warcraft is another example of the same thing which is just the most you know it was the um the point at which the kind of opaque language of everquest was made accessible to people despite its own innovations being relatively subtle on top of predominantly a vocabulary developed by other developers it feels like the rules of big success in games tend to come from refining existing sort of sets of design assumptions into a, a, a you know a consumable form rather than yeah genuinely <laughs> genuine invention exposing those in in those assumptions and turning them into just instructions like this is how this works yeah and that's fine and you'd read that and you understand it which is completely fine um and then it's weird going back to hellblade again like its combat system it doesn't tell you anything about it it just puts you to combat and expects you to kind of figure it out which as someone who's played loads of combat games i loved i loved figuring out like what the kind of combo how combo breaking worked how you know um certain moves like if you do like a I, don't know, I, won't, I won't spoil it, but there are certain moves you could do to like chain combos together that you discover as the combat system emerges. But it's there's no HUD, there's no messages saying this is your strong attack, this is your weak attack, this is your dodge. You just do it based on your knowledge of previous other action games, and it feels like that's almost perhaps over reliant on your um, you know combat knowledge from other games. Perhaps mm. um, you can pause and look up the controls and stuff, but it just throws you in there, and I'm getting a better experience than someone who isn't used to these games would be getting from that to be fair to games i don't think this is uniquely a game problem in fact i think almost all media has this issue Hmm. that like at the upper end of achievement or like upper end of what's perceived as kind of like artistic success within a medium the the more it's made for people already understand the kind of inherent vocabulary of that medium Hmm. so you know the, the the novels that win literary awards are written for people who understand how to read novels that are written to win literary awards or not to win literary awards but there's a you know there's a vocabulary above the vocabulary of those books the same is true of music right the same as well of of maybe like classical music or jazz or something hmm. specifically i think um or art cinema or anything else where there's a sort of additional layer of kind of formal or structural understanding that you're kind of expected to just have in order to get the most out of something like creators creating for people who understand and appreciate the process of creation is a not a phenomena that's unique to games i think it's maybe uniquely widespread in games where mainstream games adopt a lot of logic that would be still be alien to people who've never played a game at all. I but... think it. I think it matters more because games are instructing you and have you captive in a way that mm, a lot of other me- other media just don't. So when you're expected to complete a task under time limit and that's not communicated because you don't understand the language of the you know the the gamer language that you know the developer language that has you know come come about over the last decade, um, it's not necessarily your fault at all. Um, but you're judged to have failed. Like the game tells you, you have failed. You, you must repeat this again. Yeah. You're not allowed to any, absorb any more of this medium until you've, you know, learned what the fuck we're talking about. And music never asks you of that. Yeah, that's <laughs> and true. Nor like, does film or anything else. <laughs> yeah. I suppose I think move this, this rings a bell as a discussion we've had in the pub before. But yeah, you're right. Like if you don't understand the novel, it doesn't stop. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, 
if you don't fully appreciate some jazz, it doesn't just cease. Yeah, your your eighth grade English teacher doesn't materialise and go, you fucked up that English comprehension task. <laughs> Read that chapter again until you can answer my, my riddle three. Yeah, which is kind of interesting in a way because it means the games kind of instruct in a way that other forms don't. For sure, Like yeah. you almost, it, it, it wouldn't be a good thing, but it would probably get more people into <clears throat> headier forms of literature or music or whatever to have someone stop them and go did you understand everything about this because if you didn't why don't we try that again with a test <laughs> like um not that that wouldn't be off-putting to for people i mean that would be horrendous wouldn't it, it would be, be horrendous. kind of weird it'd be awful but it would also classes. be kind of but in a way i don't know is there an argument to be made for that <laughs> like you need to gamify jazz in order to like what you, you it's weird though graduate to miles davis and yeah then. basically like la la land the game <laughs> where ryan gosling just explains jazz to you every time you fail to that'd really be, appreciate yeah, that'd, it that'd be awful I, I, like, <laughs> given that those mediums are all about like your like internal interpretation of those ideas anyway mm. you know i mean like i suppose that's the thing like your your understanding of game so mechanics different. isn't isn't anything to do with your internal life really. no exactly it's, it's about you... beating a task and that's yeah. so different from your you know your your prior experience with metroid right like which uh, yeah. isn't necessarily connected to your rich internal life i think and with games the barrier to your progression is your knowledge of uh certain mechanics that are tied to mm. whatever it is that they're testing right then and there which is actually not the same thing as your understanding of the game and certainly not the same thing as your appreciation of the game's messages or themes sure, yeah, or whatever yeah. frequently those two are complete odds and what I'm finding... Dissonant, you might say. <laughs> almost as if the Ludo and the narrative are in some way dissonant. Um, I'm recently testing the tutorial for Heat Signature, and I'm finding I can explain a mechanic to somebody, have them face them with a challenge where only that mechanic can solve it. They will use that mechanic to solve it, and still at the end of it, not know that that mechanic is in the game or that they, is available to them in any way at all. <laughs> and I'm just like, oh my god, like, you can pass this exam without knowing anything about <laughs> the thing. Like, players just know how to press the buttons to progress, and uh, the gap between that and actually understanding what they just did is huge and really difficult to cross. Mm. So this is a totally reconcilable issue. <laughs> yep. Okay. All right. <laughs> Next question comes from Damien, who writes, Dear crocodiles and cockatoos, good day from Australia. Themed. I purchased my first Souls game in a Steam sale last year. I completed the tutorial boss in a couple of tries and took the path as it swung left down into a ravine. I tried for hours to take out a skeleton half the way down the ravine, which required dozens of successful club swings to take down. I had to avoid every attack aimed at me as a single blow would take my health pool down to zero. I eventually succeeded, but the thrill of my glorious kill was short-lived. At the bottom of the ravine, there were three skeletons. The only thing I knew about Souls games is they were meant to be brutally hard. The thought never crossed my mind that I was on the wrong area, and that I should have taken the path to the right up a narrow and well-camouflaged set of stairs carved into the cliff face which led to the first bonfire and a much easier set of enemies. My question for you is, how have your preconceptions or misconceptions about a game affected the way you interacted with it? Damien. There's the old story of the person who played Monkey Island 2 and one of the early objectives is to save up like a thousand gold to charter a boat. But also you can polish someone's peg leg and every time you do it, he gives you one gold. <laughs> and I just realised why oh, that's funny. I've, <laughs> I've got to polish this person's peg leg a thousand times and they just did that a thousand times and they got a thousand gold. For System works. Yep. In fact, there is a better way. <laughs> <laughs> 
that Dark Souls example is a classic and again goes back into like developer messaging and you know well mm. if you leave an area nearby then surely you, it must be the intro area and Dark Souls like nope nope that's why all Sorry. things that re- that's why every game that places unusual uh, emphasis on the player's ability to kind of explore beyond what they expect the developer to expect to do and also what they expect the developer to expect them to do mm. and to show initiative and to piece things together themselves is the dark souls of that thing <laughs> <laughs> which because because it despite maybe the 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 dialect of games being um being more and more sophisticated the way of explaining that to people is just to say the dark souls of <laughs> um but dark souls like totally fucks over people who behave according to that language as well like um that whole point is like oh you know you you progress according to the path that the developer of late has laid out for you expecting a gradation like a gradient of challenge and uh dark souls is like no fuck you (laughs) Um, i think i think to be fair to dark souls it's not unfair about that hmm. like it's nor is it moralizing about it like the the times when that that um theme is weakest is when games go like you treated this like it was a video game but guess what it yes. was a video game pretending to be real life <laughs> but definitely still a video game but regardless fuck you like that yeah, sort I, of i've certainly got no problem with with that trick that um dark souls plays on people and it's a very important lesson for the rest of the game yeah it's like if you don't like this bit the rest of the game is not for you. Like it's teaching you an important lesson about how things are going to play out for the next mm. 80 hours of this thing. And indeed for the rest of the series as yeah. well. Like it is, but it, maybe it's teaching you that every time you find something hard, there's actually an easier version. That you should just go and look for that instead. Sometimes there isn't. That's a good point. <laughs> but then you can go back to those skeletons at the start, <laughs> their asses, <Yeah. laughs> which is what you do eventually. Yeah. In fact, um, yeah, Bloodborne's very good about that. Actually, it gives you far more, fallback points than dark souls does yeah and actually it's not as it's a little bit more linear at the beginning as well Mm. like it doesn't really let you go completely off piste for a little while like it does but not straight away yeah i don't think you can't encounter the most horrendous stuff no um i think um i often get this misconception thing about multiplayer games particularly like competitive games i'm not into yet like Starcraft before I got into that, Dota before I got into that, Street Fighter before I got into that. Hmm. There's definitely a, a thing that settles around high skill ceiling games for me where I assume they're completely ungraspable, even from watching competitive stuff. And even sometimes because I'm watching pro play, hmm. like you kind of assume you could never do it. And actually no game I think is so complicated that you can't grasp sort of the fundamentals of what they would ask of you. But I think for me at least traditionally perceiving games as competitive or perceiving them as you know having a skill ceiling that is some way and almost certainly will be beyond me means that you can't get into any part of them and it's been interesting kind of like over the years discovering the bit of starcraft that i do get or the bit of street fighter that i do get and so on and becoming more confident going like i can get into this and it's never going to be as intimidating as it seems when it's presented to you either in the form of esports or just by a community that tends to talk about a game in sort of super opaque terms. Yeah. Like as a kind of consistent experience over the last couple of years has been slowly seeing through the jargon and the mm. assumptions of, of players to the actual game. It's like in-group expertise language is a thing 
outside of games across like professional disciplines like hmm. so many medical terms for example don't need to you know they could be far more possible i mean I, I would like doctors to be extremely precise with each other like i'm I genuinely don't really i agree with that sure. <laughs> yeah, exactly. uh, yeah I, I don't want like people to you know not <laughs> dumb down the medical language but in terms of you know that but you do you do see like in-group expertise um like languages developing in expert communities um which in the gaming context makes them almost impenetrable mm. when they needn't be when yeah. it's supposed to be an entertainment there should be like almost like a you know, fucking glossary or something um that you need to understand you know even you know high level con- street fighter concept. yeah well you I mean touched on this earlier with the dota thing with like casters lasp- lapsing into mm. the wrong kinds of terminology to kind of introduce things to people and it's such a small difference i, c- I can hear them trying not to as well yeah like, they've definitely been told, they've been told. To. <laughs> yeah. yeah but they still do it's like you know yeah and it's just, I mean, because it's, what, it's what's familiar to them. But, yeah, yeah. And plus, like, they like they have to talk so fast; they have to kind of engage with the action on such like a you know a, a quick level. They can't really engage their you know uh, thinking brain too too, too much. Yeah, too much. They just have to react, and so it's understandable that they slip back into the language. But I, I appreciate that they're putting their effort in. But yeah, I mean, that's certainly an area where I think misconceptions can set in about how complicated something is. Mm. Because as soon as you hear it described in jargon terms, you assume there's a reason for that jargon beyond convenience, that there's some complexity concealed by it. And actually, often there isn't. It's just how yeah. people describe something rather than simple to understand. In fact, yeah, my, my um, medical profession is a stupid example, but actually, like, <laughs> wargaming is a good example. Mm. Um, especially, like, even in, not to get into Warhammer discussions, but there are loads of terms like, you know, unit weighting and, you know, power, you know. Yeah. Uh, it's intimidating loads, at first, right? Like, I remember, like... Um, the, the way that is relevant is it's probably the most recent example of getting into something that has its very sh- strict terminology that feels really intimidating at first yeah. and that kind of leads you astray. Like people talk about tar pits and bubble wrap right. and four ups and you're like, what are any of these things? It sounds really exciting and hard to grasp. And then you actually, when you yeah, actually understand it's like, it, it's like, oh, that's just expert terminology that people have invented to make themselves like make the community feel better about their expertise. I think as much as anything. Yeah. Else. And to, and to kind of codify that stuff. Yeah. Whereas actually it's, stuff that you would intuitively understand it's just For sure yeah like that's the kind of endless discussion but like jargon has the effect of creating the sense of a distance between what everyone else knows and what you know but that's kind of why it exists but it doesn't really mean that at all like mm. most things are graspable it's just that having that kind of exclusive language makes it feel like it isn't and that's an... do you think like buying into that language is part of becoming and a sort of elitist club in you know, I sort of think, these okay, thinking about this recently um, and the reason for that is so I just wrote something about Warframe for Eurogamer which will, I imagine might be up by the time this podcast goes out but maybe not um, Warframe is an interesting example because like I have a pretty high tolerance for nonsense words in mm-hmm. games but Warframe is one of the first games I've hit that really pushes that like it has so much jargon that it's almost impenetrable despite being not like necessarily a, a top-down complicated game from a comp from a structural point of view it's an mmo shooter but it has its own word for everything like even stuff that would be perfectly standard fair like i had to look up so you know you don't have elite and if, if i said okay you have normal enemies and elite enemies you would immediately understood what i meant but suddenly if i said okay well you've got to kill 10 eximus enemies you have no idea what I mean. And all I mean is elite enemies. It's just that there's a different word for that. Right. It's They use Eximus instead of elite. Apparently, in a previous version of the game, 
they were leader enemies and then they renamed them Eximus <laughs> enemies so they could have their own word for them. Hmm. And it's completely unnecessary and it's absolutely obtuse and it's really off-putting. Like, it's one thing to be looking up a wiki entry for something you don't understand because it's very specific to that game. It's another thing to be looking up a wiki entry because you have no fucking idea what this means and it's just a basic game concept. Yeah, yeah. Like, that's, I think, genuinely a weakness. However... One thing that you observe playing games like that for a long of time is the chats that happen in all chat. There's a lot of people asking questions and like, what does this mean? And where do I need to go for this? And mm. how do I do this? And that kind of thing creates relationships. I'm not, I'm not saying that games should be needlessly obtuse because doing so gets people to talk to each other because that's not going to be consistent. Mm. But there is definitely a, a phenomenon where a secret language forms between players of a common game and that creates a sense of a bond. Like, it forms the basis of fandoms and, and, and communities. Like, you know, I, I say this about Warframe in a, in a disproving way, but it's because it's a game probably not going to stick with. Whereas I could definitely say things about Destiny that would make no sense to somebody who doesn't play Destiny. Mm. Similarly, like, ha as happened during the break, you and I, Tom, had a brief discussion about some upcoming changes to Warhammer Age of Sigmar in a way that total left <laughs> Tom with no idea what we had just said. That's a good point. Using sure. the words that we That's used. number wang. That was number wang. And this is number wang. And in some ways, it's all number wang. But that's what I mean. Like, I'm not comfortable saying that jargon is always bad because mm. those secret languages can feel super rewarding. And when you meet some, like when I meet somebody else that like speaks Dota, the reason, one of the reasons I'm sad about not being at the international this week isn't just not being there at the live event. It's because of the bars afterwards where you sit and have a beer with somebody who just speaks fluent Dota in the way that you mm. do. And that's super engaging. And it's like a genuine connection with another human being over a shared interest. Hmm. And shared language definitely plays a part in that. So I don't want to say that like these kind of restrictive vocabularies necessarily are 100% a bad thing. It feels like um, the Dota vocabulary is stemmed from like a generation from back from like Warcraft 3 mm. mod. And it has actually grown through the community. Whereas it feels like something like the Warframe thing is imposed that's true. I'd agree with that. Which is a little bit cynical, I find. Um, yeah, and I think the Destiny comparison is interesting because Destiny has a lot of nonsense words in it, mm. but actually it doesn't tend to use nonsense words for the things, like the mechanical things that matter. Like things have pretty normal yeah. names. Warframe seems to push it to a pretty far extreme when it comes to literally nothing making any sense <laughs> until you know what the game is talking about. Mm. Like it, has a, it has its own word for everything. Which is a commitment to invention that is possibly laudable when it doesn't want to, it doesn't want to feel generic, but it's unreadable. Like it's, it's mm. amazing how opaque it is and determinedly so, which is a super interesting creative choice for a free to buy game. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, maybe not 100% a successful one. Our next question comes from Jay, who writes, Dear Crate and Crow Barristers, Tom F. has gotten off lightly with his Zelda-induced confirm-and-cancel button switcheroo, if you can believe that. PlayStation games, as released in Japan, invariably use the O button to confirm and the X button to cancel. In the rest of the world, the opposite is true. Hence, if you play an imported Japanese game on local hardware or vice versa, you'll find that your controls reverse themselves not only when moving between games on the same system, but even between in-game menus and PlayStation OS menus. Even the most hardened import veterans fall victim to this trap on a daily basis. Begrudgingly yours, Jay. This should be punishable by death. <laughs> <laughs> All people Damn, in these not holding back. <laughs> 
apparently the uh, Switch's way of doing it is the original and it's the Xbox that reversed them. Yes, um, it is. And so all people involved in the Xbox must be put to death. <laughs> <laughs> That's my claim. I like it's such a fucking problem. It was ruinous for for zelda for ages and now i'm kind of not playing zelda so much and i go back to other stuff and now it's ruinous for that other stuff because i did successfully learn the nintendo way of doing it and now i've got a that's ruining every single experience i have with a controller on every other game is it not changeable in game can you not switch They're like the same no. buttons oh, you get no. used to it you, you get used to it like yeah i remember like we saw uh, chris and i started our bloodborne playthrough for the great crowbar head to the youtube channel to enjoy that uh, but we'd both come off playing uh, Horizon Zero Dawn, where the button for picking things up is also the button for healing. So lots of wasted vials for yeah. like, several episodes. There. Stabbing ourselves in the leg by accident. So yeah, actually, get over it. Uh, Shadow Tactics has gamepad support, and it's really good in general. Um, and actually, yeah, I have a complaint about it, but it's not really to do with gamepad support. Uh, the attack button and the use skill button are the same button. Uh, if you're close enough to someone, then it becomes the attack button, and if you're not, then it, it's the skill button, and that's really ambiguous in some contexts. And I've had so many things where, like, I'm trying to kill this guy, and my character is fucking whistling, <laughs> which is not only not killing him, but also drawing his attention directly to where I am, which is behind him until now. <laughs> yep, that's just a bad thing. Yep, <laughs> I agree. Could be a grudge. Pip's not here this week, but sadly. Pray for Pip, everybody. Pray for Pip. She's fine. She's just got a cold, but nonetheless, <laughs> she'd appreciate your prayers. Um Next and finally comes from John, who writes, I have a grudge against Pip, as I now own the My Little Pony RPG. <laughs> which I believe was a discussion at the end of episode 200. Well, none of us can remember that. No one <laughs> can remember. Thank you to, for listening to our 200th episode, if you did, because... Thank you for getting edited, that far, frankly. I, mean. I edited it, and I don't remember. <laughs> that was the the most hungover I have ever been <laughs> from an episode of The Crate and Crowbar, which is a way of celebrating 200 of these that yes. I that no one who listens to this can benefit from. And indeed, I didn't benefit from <laughs> But we did it. We made it. We made it, everybody. Back. The rest of John's uh, email proceeds. Uh, I now own the My Little Pony RPG. In my defense, I have a six-year-old daughter and a ten-year-old son to play it with, which I think beats a Tom Francis pony in game stats. Is that a <laughs> reference? That Is that a <laughs> reference? We, we don't know. <laughs> I don't remember, what? Tom. Why were we listening to... Why were we talking about... But only RPGs. I don't remember. Why did Tom Francis posit actual stats for some sort of Tom Francis boss monster along these lines? I don't think... Was there a... What a weird gimmick we've created for ourselves for this pod. Actually, it's not a gimmick. We do really like cocktails. But it's a way of life. It's, yeah. It's a anyway, way of pod. Question. What game for each of you was the quickest? Nope, not for me. And what has been the quickest comfy armchair for me. Seven Days to Die for the former and Neverwinter Nights, the old one, not the recent MMO, for the latter. Thanks, John. Hmm. So, quickest game that you've quickly felt at home with and quickest game that you quickly felt far away with. 
I mean, like, actually at home with is probably just something really boring, like a sequel to a game I already liked. Um, mm. But to sort of... Do you not find them sometimes kind of, like, strange and alienating? Like, you expect one thing and then you get something slightly different? And... Yeah, well, the high point, you know, the most comfortable would be something like like that. Um, you know, like, Mankind Divided after Human Revolution. Right. Very easy to, to play. Um, uh, but to... Uh, to like recontextualize it into like what game that you're not previously familiar with clicked the fastest um i hate to harp on about it but into the breach was um as soon as you that game very quickly gets you to the point where you're pushing an enemy into another enemy's line of fire and as soon as that happens and that enemy shoots the other enemy you're like yes i'm fucking on board this is my yeah. game <laughs> uh and then for bouncing off uh recently tumble seed was uh this is a game where you control a sort of big horizontal platform by moving the left edge or the right edge up or down hmm. to just basically control the tilt. And then the, the protagonist, such as it is, is a seed that's rolling around on that. And so it's a very slippery, tricky thing that you are uh, you can only affect very indirectly. If essentially, you affect the rate of change of, um, uh, of velocity of this thing. And so if it's going the wrong direction, you can't immediately change it. You've got to sort of bias it towards eventually rolling the way you want it to roll and then you when you do that you've overdid it you did it too much it's going the wrong way now and it's going to fall in the hole and then when it falls in the hole it's dead and it is famously hard it's uh the the developers have done like a post not a post-mortem but like a you know blog post saying hey we've noticed you will find this way 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 too hard and here's why you're wrong <laughs> um but uh even separately from the difficulty just the thing it is asking me to do is so maddeningly fiddly i just found it infuriating like it must have been like three minutes and i was just like i'm never playing this game again <laughs> i'll never ever play this game again and i noped out of a uh a game i was expecting to love which was mirror's edge catalyst yeah and um the whole setup like all the cutscenes. And how, like, really boring the opening levels were just to traverse, given that the whole fucking game should be about traversing yeah. and targeting, you know, geometry. Um, I, I was immediately put off it and I never went back to it, even though I, it's a game I, by all rights, should have been well into. And I had that, the tutorial conceit in there I really hated, which was they had a sort of a hologram go out and do it before you. Right. So you either did exactly what it did, which is boring. <laughs> Or if you did it in any way that was different, then it just failed you. It's like, <laughs> fuck off. That's yeah. just so Rubbish. dispiriting. And oh man. I, I keep wanting to go back to it, but I'd literally feel like I can't. <laughs> <laughs> like, suppose, uh, the idea of an open world Mirror's Edge is cool, but I, you know, if you're introducing it that way, surely the rest isn't going to follow. I'll go, yeah. I'll try it. I'll try it. It's full of bullshit, to be honest. <laughs> I okay. got out of the tutorial. I, mean, I got that I, sense. Yeah. I got out in the open world and it was like, I, you know, I took like a zip line and it was like, oh, use the light attack on this enemy. And I used a heavy attack on him or something. And I, I kicked him too far. I too effectively dealt with him. So <sighs> it forced me to restart the whole section. I just, oh, go to hell. <laughs> That's all of the questions we have time for, I'm afraid. If you'd like to send us a question for a future episode of the podcast you can do so by emailing us questions and crate and crowbar questions at crate and you can also tweet us at crate and crowbar or hang out with our community on our excellent discord channel you can find the link for that crate and crowbar.com you can find us on youtube at youtube.com forward slash crate and crowbar where you'll find the uh, bloodborne playthrough that 
Tom mentioned and our episodes, including our Christmas episodes, where you can find out what good things came out in the last three years because <laughs> we don't remember. You can also support us, as many people do, for which we're very grateful, on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Crank and Crowbar. Your, uh, your donations for these pods help us launch our little side projects and, and run the whole thing, and it's very much appreciated. If you would like to follow us as individuals... I'm on Twitter at C Thurston, that's C-T-H-U-R-S-T-E-N, Tom Senior. At PCG Ludo, L-U-D-O. <laughs> How many O's are in that, Tom? Oh. <laughs> it's one, isn't it? Yes, it's one. <laughs> so you said O, which was zero, so no O's. <laughs> Just PCG Lud. But it's not, though, is it, Tom? <laughs> Follow PCG Lud, I want to see what happens. <laughs> okay. Essentially. Tom Francis. I am at Pentadac, P-N-T-A-D-A-C-T. Fantastic. Thanks, Thanks for listening, everybody. everybody.